You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. Something strange is happening to some ordinary people. Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, rob a bank? He's a law-abiding taxpayer, minding his own business. Killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure in the hell's him. Homicide for 13 years. I have never seen anything like this. You trying to tell me that she's part of this? Step out of the car slow. I want answers, and I want them now. Explanation won't help you. I want to know why it takes 15 shots to take down some sold-out stripper. Why three law-abiding citizens all of a sudden go crazy and start killing people? We talking spacemen here? Something gets in his way, he kills it. Finds a body, gets inside, uses it to move around. Try for one on the tire. But you think this is easy? Why don't you try? a career in the police didn't really prepare you for this did it the hidden you think it's over now you're wrong Welcome to the projection booth I'm your host Mike White back in the booth is Ms Jamie Sammons formerly Jamie Jenkins that's right. Thanks for having me back. As always, I enjoy being here, and uh, I hope that my name change doesn't confuse people. I'm already confused. <laughs> but I don't think that had anything to do with it. And joining us for the very first time is Mr. Eric J. Peterson. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you along. I've heard your voice for so long, it's nice to be able to finally talk with you. It, it's, it's been a while coming, that's for sure. This week, we are looking at the sci-fi action film The Hidden. Released in 1987, the movie stars Michael Nouri as Tom Beck, a straight-arrow cop who's involved in a string of cases where straight-laced guys suddenly go crazy and start listening to rock music, driving fast cars, and misbehaving by robbing banks or committing homicide. Beck gets partnered with an odd duck FBI agent, Lloyd Gallagher, played by Kyle McLaughlin. The two form an uneasy partnership as they follow a new lead in the case. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Hidden before, go ahead, turn off the show, go watch the show, and come back. It's okay. We'll still be here. So, Jamie, when was the first time you saw The Hidden, and what did you think? I don't recall the very first time I saw it, but I do recall that I have always enjoyed it. I've always liked it. And um, in the past couple of years, I've couple of years i've watched it about three times it just is one of those things that keeps coming up for some reason or another and uh, i keep watching it so um and uh i'm happy to report i've enjoyed it every time so i guess that says something about it 
How about you, Eric? Uh, this is a film that I'm sure I saw on VHS probably shortly after the VHS was released. I believe it was one of those deals where we went to a friend's house uh, for a weekend where maybe his parents were gone or they were just out for a Saturday or whatever. And we rented a bunch of films, and this was one of them. I'm thinking probably it was the uh, Kyle McLaughlin connection because we had seen Blue, Blue Velvet. And uh, so this would have been 88, 89, somewhere in there. I want to say I saw it probably somewhere around the same time. I'm trying to remember if I saw this before I saw Twin Peaks or after. I mean, this came out in 87, so maybe 88 on VHS. And I want to say, what, Twin Peaks started 1990? Does that sound right? That's about right, yeah. I know. I definitely was watching it when I was in college, and that was in 1990. So I really liked that it was kind of like, um, I don't know, I can't say a mini Twin Peaks uh, kind of, of event, but, you know, having Christopher Mulkey and uh, Kyle MacLachlan in it, I was really happy. I always like when I catch multiple uh, Twin Peaks actors in a film, like, I want to say, like, Servants of Twilight has a whole bunch of Twin Peaks people, and what, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 might have a whole bunch of Twins, Twin Peaks people in it, but, I mean, having Kyle MacLachlan as this odd duck FBI agent who is coming from the Northwest, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I can buy that, because uh, I was definitely used to his, uh, I guess this must have been post-Twin Peaks, because I was very used to his uh, uh, Dale Cooper character. So it was very nice to have him kind of uh, in the same odd duck FBI role. So no no trips to the Black Lodge or anything, but um, it, it was still pretty rewarding. Yeah, this was a great, great VHS film. I know that it played theatrically. I don't remember it being out theatrically. I think I would have been maybe... Uh, 15, 16, something like that. So it would have been a pretty good age to go out and see it at the theaters. But what, for whatever reason, I just kind of missed it. Kind of to your point, Jamie, I have watched this thing a few times over the years, and it seems to actually get better every single time I watch it. I was probably 15, 16 when it came out as well. And I was, I was into movies. I was keyed into, at the theater, they had these like little fold, trifold things that were like pamphlets that told you what was coming in the next three months. And I always picked those up and I would highlight the, the movies that sounded interesting and anything with action or FBI or space aliens or anything like that would have definitely caught my attention. So I don't know how this got missed. And I went to a, a high school that was basically a magnet school for the arts, but was also very, very punk rock and people were into uh, weird stuff, and I believe actually mentioned Twin Peaks. I think somebody on the third floor blackboard once put that whole map of all the connections between the Twin Peaks characters, you know, during the run of the show. So it was in that hallway for like four weeks, and uh, so I don't know how this got missed. I don't remember too many connections between Hank Jennings and Agent Cooper. They seem to kind of live in different worlds when it came to that. In this one as well, because we don't really get introduced to uh, Lloyd Gallagher, the Kyle McLaughlin character, until a little bit later on in the film. But we are introduced to Christopher Mulkey right at the beginning. I mean, he's right there in the credits. And I like that the credits are they're 
credits over surveillance footage from inside of this bank. It takes you a little bit to realize, you know, of course you see surveillance footage, you're going to think bank mm -hmm. or some sort of protected place. But it took me a little while to realize that one person in this whole scenario isn't moving. And he's just standing over to the right-hand side of the screen for the longest time as all of this other activity is going on. And then finally my eye kind of goes to this guy and it's like, something's not quite right here. And definitely something is not quite right because this guy pretty soon by the end of the credits he's going on a kill crazy rampage and just murdering everyone inside of this bank and robbing this bank and that's when we get our first look as he comes towards the camera at this christopher mulkey character and we see him go outside get in this fast car and they just start tearing ass through town with this loud rock music just blaring and he doesn't have a care in the world he just likes his music, likes his money, and he's off to the races with this, uh, I don't even know what kind of car it is, but it's uh, pretty darn slick. It's a some kind of European sports car, like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or something like that. And uh, we see throughout the film a lot of high-end European sports cars being used. And uh, it's kind of juxtaposed with the, the more... Uh, boxy, everyday, pedestrian, but sturdy American cars that our cops tend to drive. And it's right around here that we're introduced to the Michael Norrie character, Tom Beck, and also to his partner, who's played by Ed O'Ross. And they're actually looking for this Christopher Mulkey character. And they're, uh, they get a call over the radio that he's just robbed a bank and is going through town. So they hurry up and go over where there's a, a roadblock that's formed. But the Christopher Mulkey character has no fucks to give. He just completely plows through this uh, roadblock. And they end up taking him out by shooting this uh, beautiful or once beautiful car and exploding it and him going up in a ball of fire. And uh, so pretty, pretty darn good opening, I have to say. It definitely kept my interest. For sure. I mean, it just it hits the ground running and sucks you in right away. And, you know, you immediately want to know. Who is this guy? What's he doing? What's, you know, um, well, basically what's going on? And uh, from that point on, it just gets weirder and weirder and, and more and more interesting. I think the screenplay does a really good job of setting up so many of these questions, like who is this person? What's going on? And then when you find out that, like, what was it? A couple weeks prior, he was an absolutely normal guy. Like we, when we first see them investigating this person, this mulky character, his neighbor is just like, oh, yeah, really super quiet, you know, never any problems or anything, which is, of course, what we hear about serial killers. So we're just, we're just kind of on edge, like, was he really a quiet guy? But then everything else that we're led to believe, this guy was really a quiet guy, and they just snapped and went crazy. And at one point, Ed O'Ross even, like, gives this whole litany of things that this guy has done. He killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. Robbed eight banks, six supermarkets, four jewelry stores, and a candy shop. Six of the ones he killed, he carved up with a butcher knife. Two of them were kids. He did all that in two weeks. We're pretty happy that he's basically in a coma in the hospital, and it looks like he's not even going to be able to make it through the night. So it's like, okay, well, if anybody deserved to be crispy critters, it's this guy here, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you see this kind of clean-cut, yuppie-looking white guy who's looks very upwardly mobile you know he's driving a fancy car he's wearing nice clothes 
And, you know, of course, then he robs the bank and then you start hearing about all the other awful things he's done and it kind of changes what your perception of him was. He's projecting this image that at the time was the successful ideal. It's right around this time, too, that we find out more about this Michael Nuri character, Tom Beck, and just what a super cop he is. I love that when we first we, – we more than really – see him so much we hear about him and we have his like lieutenant asking um i I guess it's the chief of of police or something but his superior who's played by clue gulager asking him to not be put on this political detail because there's a senator that's coming into town and of course that's big red flag this will come up later on but i love that the lieutenant is just like tom beck is the best i've got if i give him to you now i'll never get him back again my department will then crumble crime will run rampant the city will fall into ruin rampaging hordes will control the streets and life as we know it will end it's kind of like nicholas angel in hot fuzz and then it doesn't take long for him actually to get pulled off of normal duty because he's getting introduced to the Kyle mclaughlin character lloyd gallagher who comes in and he's uh very he's not necessarily yuppie-ish i don't know how would you guys describe how the how he's dressed McLaughlin is, uh, is is dressed in kind of a, a nice gray tailored suit. Uh, you know, when you think FBI of that era, it's it's all black suits, white shirts, either a blue tie or a black tie. Very. J. So it's Edgar either Hoover. FBI or Mormon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's you know J Edgar Hoover's you know idea of the FBI man you know ex marine clean cut and then you get mclaughlin in this kind of soft gray suit that's very tailored that's uh that's also not really yuppie looking but definitely kind of upscale looking you know it's not off the rack at sears this isn't the suit you're going to see in a tarantino film necessarily so he's he's definitely the the new fbi but he's also not quite right we find that out pretty uh, quickly because there's even one moment where Tom Beck is like, you know, doesn't anybody say please anymore? And McLaughlin kind of stops him. He's just like, please, you know, I need you on this case, basically, because here's the guy who I've been tracking for all this time and hands them a picture of the Christopher Mulkey character. And they're just like, oh, whatever. You know, he's, he's over in the hospital and he's going to be lucky if he lives through the night. And that's what kind of takes the McLaughlin and, and puts a wild uh, boar up his ass. He's just like, oh my God, I got to get over there. Because then we see what's happening at the hospital, which is what plunges this movie from what could have been a interesting buddy cop type movie, just normal everyday kind of thing into the realm of sci-fi because we have Mulkey getting up completely burned, completely, you know, um, looking like he's not going to survive. And the, slug for lack of a better term inside of him knows that he's going to die so he goes over to the guy in the next bed opens up his mouth and this huge space slug basically comes out of his mouth and goes into this other guy's mouth we've exchanged hosts now so the guy who is pretty much comatose the other guy his eyes open and he's off to the races now and he becomes pretty much our our main villain i would say for I don't know what ninety percent of this film. Um, Good chunk. And it, it, yeah, yeah, and he he is terrific. I absolutely love the way that this guy is portrayed. He's uh, William Boyette, who's playing this character, Jonathan Miller, and he's just uh, he's got heart problems. He's got stomach problems. So he's he's not necessarily the best body that this 
Slug could have chosen, but he was the best available option at the time. One of my favorite moments of the film is after that exchange and the doctors come in and they're trying to get him. They notice that, you know, he's he's uh, he had flatlined, uh, according to the machine. So they're trying to get him back. And then you see <laughs> you see the mulky body just sort of kicked over in the corner on the floor, lying curled around the table down there on the floor. Nobody makes one mention of it. Nobody says anything about guy on the floor. And that just strikes me as so funny. I got so tickled the other night that I had to rewind it and watch it again just because I was laughing so hard. And it's I'm like, there is a guy, there's a patient on the floor and they don't, you know, and I understand they want to save the one guy, but it's like you could say, hey, somebody come in here and get this guy off the floor. Not a word, not, not a word. And I just think that was hilarious. Yeah, we're going to find out later on that the security and kind of the way that they run this hospital, it leaves a little bit to be desired. Oh, definitely. Definitely. The, we uh, end up following the the Jonathan Miller character, and uh, he goes into a, a record store, which was fantastic to see an old record store. It was great. You know, like, I forgot, like, you know, just how many record stores in the city, because this is just basically like a, a narrow tube where you've got a couple long rows of records or cassettes. I think he's putting cassettes in his pocket. So, you know, that brings back memories and then posters all over the wall and then a counter on the other side. And that's it. I mean, this is a very no frills record store. It it also looks very much like an independent record store. The, the posters that you see on the wall is everything from Bon Jovi to sisters of mercy, uh, just random stuff where today, if you have a, a record store, if there's still one around, oftentimes all of the posters are product placement from different record labels that actually pay to have those things displayed. And it's not the, not always the organic kind of what somebody's interested in or the cool art poster that came out. And I, I'm always a big fan of seeing the uh, record store on film. And in fact, I'm a big fan of the, the film uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself because one of the things they talk about is how you inadvertently see – uh, gas stations and grocery stores change over time through the movies. And they, they have an example of a 1940s gas station, and then they show one from the 70s and then one from later on. And I think – and I would love and think that somebody should go out there and do the same thing with record stores on film, You know, maybe centered around the record store from High Fidelity, but you know, then have like the – record store from pretty in pink and there's actually a film from the late 70s i'm totally blanking on the name of that has uh jeff goldblum that's set in boston that has a fantastic scene in a record store you know and i'm sure that if you go back to the 50s you'll see some cool ones and then obviously today you know you might see uh you know an indie record store in some film or a period piece or something and it it really is a, a snapshot of a place in time not only because of the, the media, but because of the posters on the wall and the way that things are decorated. And like you said, it's this really small tube that maybe is run by three or four people. And, you know, it's not like it's, it's a small business. It's not, not like it's some big chain or something like that. I'd say the one thing that doesn't really ring true in this film is that you have a middle-aged man 
in a record store and that the clerk is actually paying attention to him because I know as like a, a even just a, a younger man being in a record store it took a lot to get the attention of some of those clerks you know I'm thinking especially of like school kids records you know in Ann Arbor oh yes I mean I mean god you, if you want to talk about snobby clerks that's like the example I mean you, you can keep your empire records kids in high fidelity those ki- those kids at school kids knew how to ignore you very very well and then there was wazoo records where you'd be buying something and they'd be making fun of it and pj's records where if you weren't into their little jazz world man they 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 kind of treated you like dirt too yeah i actually have a kind of an attitude about record stores in ann arbor because i grew up in ann arbor and i had a lot of exposure to the different record stores over the years and uh, a lot of attitude from people. And I had friends that worked in various stores, so I'd hear hear the stories about what went on behind the scenes. Yeah, just a lot of know-it-all, self-serving, customer-alienating crap. Well, this guy, he's definitely interested in, in Mr. Miller because Miller's there, yeah, sticking all these tapes into his pockets. And he uh, eventually ends up killing the, the record store kid. So I, I didn't mind seeing that. But uh, And then what I thought was hilarious is that he sees this big boom box in the display case and steals this boom box. And then he's just walking down the street, just blaring concrete blonde throughout the, you know, the, the city as he's walking along to his next destination. And I got to say, I know, like, you know, looking at the the soundtrack, it's like Concrete Blonde had, what, like four songs on here? But it just seemed like every song that they played was Concrete Blonde. I mean, they definitely had a, a lion's share of the soundtrack. Let, let me ask you, there was a another act that was on the soundtrack that actually did the theme that was played over the end of the film. They don't seem to resonate as much or to to have that noticeability in the film is it maybe that concrete blonde is maybe more of a distinctive sound and maybe a little uh, a little less generic so you take notice I mean, I really latched on to um, Still in Hollywood, yeah. so I really recognized that song. It was like one of those, like, oh, I know this song as soon as it came on. So maybe it was just that I had been familiar with them. And if I am watching this in 1991, by that time, like, Bloodletting was out, and so I was kind of more familiar with Jeanette Napolitano's voice and everything. And she's got such a great, great voice that it really... I, I think that sticks out more than might stick out more than the music of the of the band itself. But yeah, I think that's what helps put country concrete blonde like really into my ears when I'm listening to this film. Yeah, she also interestingly did a lot of work with other artists around the the time of the, the early '90s. She was on the the Bad Religion record uh, Recipe for Hate. She did two side projects aside from Concrete Blonde, one with Mark Moreland from the band Wall of Voodoo and another with uh, Holly Vincent from Holly and the Italians. And then additionally on Bloodletting, there was the track Tomorrow Wendy, which is uh, written by another member of Wall of Voodoo, uh, Angie Pryboy. That's it's a really great song. So she she was not only getting her music out there, but working with other artists and uh, you know, covering their stuff on her albums and trying to explore different types of music. Yeah, we were saying during the uh, Pump Up the Volume episode, because they uh, have the, uh, I won't say the title track, but 
during the opening credits, uh, I want to say, or, or at least in a very prominent moment of the film, they're doing a cover. Concrete Blonde is doing a cover of Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. And I think that was really a, a lot of people's first exposure to Leonard Cohen was that cover. And then, of course, you know, you got more when it came to um, Natural Born Killers and stuff. But I, I think for me, that might have been the first time that I'd ever heard that song. And so it was nice. They were definitely bringing more attention to uh, other bands and, and other projects that I might not have been familiar with. There's an element of going back and looking at these films and hearing bands that you came to know later on. You know, maybe when you were watching The Hidden the first time around and you didn't know Concrete Blonde, that didn't really register. But now, later on, having that exposure to their music through whatever was on the radio in the early 90s or from Pump Up the Volume, that you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. You know, there's a certain amount of archaeology going back and looking at what artists were used prior to the, the point that you are you discovered them. Yeah, that's always kind of a shocker when you're watching something that you haven't seen in years and you're just like, wow, I don't remember that song being on the soundtrack or, oh, okay, that that band contributed too. And sometimes, sometimes they stick out like a sore thumb where it's just like, why would you have used that song in here? And then other times you're like, oh, there must have been a deal. Like, I'm trying to think of, of something where it was just like, and I think, well, this might have been a case where it's like, here's one record label that kind of spot Sponsored the entire soundtrack so it's like okay all of these bands they might not be of the same cloth but they are of the same label so that's one of the reasons why you have these two disparate bands both on the same soundtrack which is like why who would ever listen to those two things together there was a point in time when especially labels were oh these soundtracks are selling really well or they're popular and that was this is what happened in the 90s so there was more of an emphasis on we need to get you on the soundtrack for whatever this new film coming out is going to be. And then that changed uh, somewhere in the mid-90s to we need to put you on the cool TV show. So this week on Charmed, the <laughs> girls go to a club and uh, Letters from Cleo is playing. Just imagine if you dialed that back to the 80s and there was television shows this week on Knight Rider, uh, what – Wall of Voodoo or DI or the Surf Punks, you know, this week on Baywatch missed a major opportunity. How many surf bands could they have had? Yeah, shadowy men from a shadowy planet this week on Baywatch. Agent Orange this week on Baywatch. You know, what's interesting now, if you watch television shows now, particularly the ones that are aimed at a younger audience, uh, like, say, Scream, um, mm -hmm. which is on MTV, they do a now playing thing across that runs that, that runs across the bottom of the screen so if you're and that's one of the shows we watch for evil episodes so i'm i, I keep up with it but uh if you know, so during a scene just any scene random scene the music is just in the background like say they're in a coffee shop you know music plays no part in the plot at all it doesn't matter it's just background noise they haven't you know now playing and the artist running across the bottom of the screen uh, so that you can always be abreast of who or what is being played throughout the show. At first, I found that really distracting. And I was like, well, that's annoying, you know. But then I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, have, there have been so many times when I've been watching something and, I'm, and then I'm, I like hit the Internet because I have to have to figure out what song that is and and who that is. And it takes me forever to Google around and find it. So I guess they're just kind of handing it to you. And also it is MTV. So, you know, I guess they should do something music related. 
It makes sense. And I remember in the 90s, there was a point in time when shows at the end of the episode would say, tonight's episode featured music from whatever, whatever, while the credits were rolling. So that was that was a way that they kind of kind of integrated things, too. And what's interesting now is there's a number of films and television shows from the uh, the late 70s through the 80s that have not made the jump to DVD or Blu-ray. And a large part of that is the music clearance rights, because when those films were television shows were created, no one thought about, hey, somebody's going to want to be able to relicense this stuff. So there's a big big controversy in some circles about the use of replacement music and the fact that a lot of, you know, not necessarily A-list films, but but B films and films that people saw over and over on cable aren't available. And 99% of the time, the culprit is the uh, music rights. Do you guys remember the show Werewolf? The uh, Chuck Connors, the Chuck Connors show will likely never, ever come to DVD or Blu-ray for that very reason. Well, I, I, on the one hand, it would be nice to have the quote original music. On the other hand, sometimes I look at it as an opportunity to replace music that maybe wasn't the best choice with stuff that might be a better choice. But I don't, I don't know that that everybody sees things that way. Well, part of the problem with that particular one is that there is uh, there's it's something to do with the uh, I don't know if it's a pilot episode. And Brian actually knows more about this the particular thing, this particular story than I do. But it's. There's something that it's basically interwoven in. They can't separate the mm. the dialogue track from the music track or something like that. Like there's the way it was the way it was done. I think they actually organically had music playing in the background. So or, or something bizarre. But anyway, there's some really bizarre thing that got with that that they it's they're sort of trapped. I wish I had it like I wish I had all the details in my head right now, but I totally don't. So anyway, anybody who is wondering about that, look it up because I probably told it wrong. But anyway, there's a it, it's sad because I love that show. Anyone out there who knows about my show liking it knows that I particularly love werewolves, and I uh, used to just be crazy about that show. And it's one of those shows that I used to wait for it to come on DVD. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for this to come on DVD. And uh, it doesn't look like we're ever going to get it. And it's a, it's a music thing. It's weird. So the boom box kind of continues on its journey. And we've got Miller at a, uh, uh, a little diner here. And uh, he's sitting there just stuffing his face and playing his music super loud. And pretty much at this point, I kind of realized that uh, basically the alien is almost like a teenage boy. I mean, he's basically pure id. You know, he wants to eat what he wants to, to eat. He wants to drive fast cars. He wants to listen to loud music. I mean, it's it's almost like sex and drugs and rock and roll and fast cars. And, and he just... Uh, really has no care for anything in the world other than getting those kind of needs met. And it's also interesting that the the body he now inhabits is not the young, healthy, hot, super attractive body of the era, but this this older guy whose body has been in really bad shape and is kind of breaking down. So the way that he's acting does not necessarily go with the, the, the image of his body. Even when he puts on a suit and dresses well and drives a nice car, it, there's this juxtaposition of this, this body that doesn't really fit the actions and image that, that he's portraying and uh, committing. Well, you had talked earlier last time we talked that he really kind of, or, or the alien, 
really kind of at, at this point in time almost embodies kind of a yuppie attitude where it's just like I want what I want, damn the consequences. Yeah, well, there's definitely that that Reagan era, I got mine or I'm going to get mine mentality. And it doesn't matter who's in the way and it doesn't matter how I maybe don't fit into the the image of that system. It's uh, it's this kind of, you know, Patrick Bateman's psychopathic, you know, uh, greed is good lust for whatever whatever I want, whether it's the, to play my music or to eat all this food that this body can't handle or, you know, kill people who get in my way. And I think that it was really exemplified by the scene where he wants a, uh, a new car. You know, he goes and sees this uh, lot where they're selling sports cars and he, finds one that he wants unfortunately it's being sold to another guy but that's the car that he wants and he won't take no for an answer he won't look at any other cars he just says over and over again i want that car and he is just so single of purpose that nothing can get into his way there's definitely a sense of entitlement and a sense of not going to take no for an answer i'm going to get what i want no matter what and no matter who's in my way and even – he's on a car lot. He could have gotten just about any car, but he wants that specific one, and that's it. I love how when they're trying to get him to leave, they're trying to kick him out, and his he just his response is, I need the keys. Like, you don't seem to understand uh, that I want this car. <laughs> I need the keys. And he's, you're boring me right now. <laughs> he stays on message. <laughs> keys. Keys. Nothing else. <laughs> nothing else penetrates his brain. It's all just keys. Yeah, I hear you talking. I need the keys. And when he finally gets the keys, he thanks the guy he does, you know, before he right blows, before him, he blows away. him away. You know, <laughs> and his coke goes flying. This is also part and parcel of a a kind of Terminator esque thread throughout the film of this this unstoppable being that wants what it wants. It's on this mission to get whatever it is that it wants, and it's. I mean, there, there's also threads of that in the Stallone film Cobra. That is, you know, this, this driving force to get what it is that they want with nothing standing in their way. And that's what we see now definitely is that 80s go-go Reagan era mentality. The Terminator has a mission, at least, and the mission is to get Sarah Connor. This guy has no mission other than to just basically have fun. You know, he's there on, on planet Earth. It's not like he wants to conquer the world. I mean, eventually he does get a goal, but it basically just kind of falls in his lap, you know, as he's there sitting at that diner and watching the television and seeing how much people applaud the senator. He's just like, oh, OK. And that kind of, you know, it, it's not like he then immediately goes out and says, I want to take over the senator. It just becomes kind of like a, you know, point noted type of thing. And I think I'll, I'll do that next. You know, I think I'll uh, I, I think I'll buy me a sports team. You know, this is uh, what, what I want to do. I, I'll uh, just go out and do whatever I want. There's no real purpose for him. He just kind of is floating around, indulging all of these needs that he has. I don't even know what they're needs. I think they're just desires. Mm-hmm. Or are they just passing time, maybe? But yeah, it's not like he's you know going back to the lab and working on the big doomsday ray or anything like that. <laughs> it's not like he has to pick up the dry cleaning by six or you know get right. a to do list or anything going. So we're kind of cutting back and forth between Miller and the Beck and, and Gallagher characters, and they're bonding. You know, we're we're getting to know both of these guys as they're kind of going through this investigation. You know, they hear about the murder at the car lot. They hear about the murder of the record store guy. So 
they're you know investigating this stuff, but they're always one step behind at this point. And we get kind of a little bit of a clue here as to what type of person or maybe not a person Lloyd is when he also very much enjoys fast cars and even goes so far as to tell Beck that he uh, stole the car. You know, he just, he wanted the car, he stole the car. So there's kind of a parallel going on here between Miller and Gallagher with this. And it's pretty soon here where we have the trope for uh, buddy cop films, which is the, hey, are you, uh, do you have plans tonight? Come over to my house for dinner. Like, as soon as I saw this scene, I was just like, oh, okay, this is the Martin Riggs coming over to uh, Danny Glover's house kind of a scene. So, but fortunately, I don't know where Lloyd actually lives, but I know he doesn't live in a trailer down by the beach. So he seems to be a little bit more together than Mel Gibson's character was. A little, but that doesn't make it any less awkward. (laughs) No, no. God, this is an awkward scene, but in a good way. It's literally a fish-out-of-water scene, including when they go into the daughter's bedroom that has a nautical whale fish theme on her bedspread and her wallpaper. You know, it's it's almost telegraphing that, that, you know, something's not quite right here. Yeah, and it's really that moment where I can't remember if it's before or after – Lloyd Gallagher goes in and sees the little girl, sees Beck's daughter, Juliet, and when he's looking at himself in the mirror, I mean, that's the moment for me where this film really kind of clicked a little bit more, because obviously we got the the fast car, so there was a little bit of a clue there, but yeah, when he's staring at himself in the mirror, I was just like, okay, something's really not right, and then that moment when he and Juliet kind of connect which is, yeah, that's, I think, Jamie, you talked about how just absolutely disturbing this scene is now from a 2016 perspective. Well, it, it is. It goes on for way too long, for one. I mean, it just, I was cringing and squirming over here just at how long he just stood there. He and the daughter stood there looking at each other, and the parents are, like, looking at each other, looking around. And I'm thinking parents today would probably have a much different reaction to that, or at least a, oh, okay, that's enough, get out of my room now, you know, but she was very gracious about it, but it was creepy. Yeah, and then later on when he's like, your daughter's very special, it was just like, ew. Well, if, if you think about more recent uh, films that have business partner or a new, you know, male figure that's working with the father, something I'm thinking like, uh, have you seen the show Halt and Catch Fire that AMC I really enjoy that show, but there, there's definitely uh, the the wild card character comes over to the house for dinner and interacts with the children. And nowadays, you're always like, ooh, you know, there's a little bit of hesitancy. But also, the the nice guys had a really great dynamic with uh, Russell Crowe and and Ryan Gosling's daughter. That you know, that's set in the '70s. But you know, when you think about it, would today would you let you know your your new work coworker come and say goodnight to your daughter in her bedroom? I don't know. It's a shame that we live in a world that we do now where it's just like, hmm, you know, just all of a sudden we're flashing on like molester, (laughs) you know, or worse. When he says, you know, I don't mean to disturb you or I don't mean to interrupt you and he starts to leave and she's like, no, 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 come on in for a minute. I'm like, really? This is (laughs) I mean, even if I didn't think uh, even if my head didn't go to, you know, creepy molester place it's just what an odd thing this is a guy who just walked into your home why would you invite him in when you're telling your little girl good night why don't you just let him go back in there you guys do your thing you know it'd take like a minute and then 
you know, join him in the living room or wherever. It just, it just seems a little odd. No, no, no. Come on in for a minute. I'm like, uh, who are you? <laughs> I just can't picture that even happening when I was a little girl. You know, like if one of my dad's work people came over, he would have been like, oh, come on in my daughter's bedroom. I mean, that just wouldn't have been a thing. No, and then the the whole conversation that they have at dinner, you know, we just we we definitely know that something is is afoot here, just with how odd he starts to act at dinner. I mean, when she asks him, the wife asks where he's from, and he just points up at the sky, you know, and she is like, "Oh, from the north." And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when they ask exactly where, he gives like you know, Beetle Brocks or something. And it's just like, "Oh, okay, well, I haven't heard of that city before," but yeah, so. By now, we kind of realize that, that Lloyd is a fellow alien, but we're not exactly sure what type of alien he is at this point. You know, but we're pretty sure that he's one of the good ones, as they would say. You know, eh, I don't like aliens, but Lloyd, you're one of the good ones. And some, I assume, are good people. There's definitely a, a, a kind of slow reveal of his odd behavior. We already, at this point, know that, that they're hunting an alien, but they really haven't necessarily fully fleshed out that Lloyd is is not an alien yet. And this is where we get more clues. And, you know, you watch the film the first time, and if you don't know what's going to happen, then there's definitely, whoa, something's weird here kind of, kind of reaction. And when you watch it again, you start to see earlier on where you pick up the cues. That's nicely done. So it, it doesn't give all of us – it doesn't give all of the information – at, at this at one time and it's allows things to kind of kind of be fleshed out as it goes along maybe when you watch this the second time you're like oh that's why he knows that this can go from a person to a person well as michael nori is just like wait a second this guy was bad and then the same guy who was in the same hospital room now he is bad i don't understand this and it's like without that knowledge of there being a host alien or anything it's just like oh yeah this it wouldn't make sense to an outsider but of course lloyd is right there he's just like oh yeah yeah now it's this guy and that he's been you know we find out later on in the film that he's been chasing this creature for nine years and i'm not exactly sure exactly how many hosts that it's had over the years but you know he's right there it always it seems like a step behind unfortunately until this luckily fortunately there we are filming now and we can actually see him capture the alien later on but he still has to go through all kinds of shit because like you were saying the body of miller is just completely breaking down by the time he ends up going to the strip club the what was it the harem room that he's got cards whoever mm-hmm. whoever this guy was or actually no he steals one of the the guy's wallets and and inside of, of one of his victims wallets is there all these cards for strip clubs and he ends up going to the strip club and yeah he's uh he's not doing too well by the by this time the space slug has tried to kind of either break out of him or is working so hard to to keep his heart pumping that it was kind of bursting out of his arm before so yeah he's he's not looking as good as he might as he's sitting there at the leaking all over the bar he's he's just bleeding yeah. everywhere and the guy's like hey buddy you okay i'm thinking I, my resp- my reaction would be more along the lines of quit bleeding on my bar like <laughs> i've worked in the security business uh over the years Part of that was I would always have to teach the new hire class for how this, how you write a report and that kind of thing. One of the things I always told them was if you see somebody leaking any kind of fluid, you just call for an ambulance. And 
<laughs> don't don't worry about let the, let the professionals check it out kind of thing. Now, I could see if you're running a strip club. And by the way, this is one of the the cleanest strip clubs I've ever seen in an 80s film. Uh, if you're running a strip club, maybe you don't want the cops coming in or the fire department and maybe not the, you know, ambulance crew coming in. But, you know, somebody that's kind of leaking all over the bar like that, you know, maybe maybe there's an incentive to be like, oh, let's get you some help. Why don't you step outside and uh, let, let the medics check you out there? I don't know. Being a strip club in L.A., they've probably seen people leak a lot worse than that. That's true. That's true. <laughs> in the 80s, too. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've, I've actually been to strip clubs in L.A. We went for one of my friend's uh, bachelor parties, and I, I, we went to about three of them, and I was done. Really not my scene. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, and this was 2002 or something, 2003. And uh, they kind of had it down as far as the controlling the environment goes. Maybe not so much in the 80s, though. Yeah, you would have at least called over to the bouncer and been like, take care of this yep, stuff. Yep. But So was Brenda Lee Van Buren, was she uh, on the stage? Gentlemen, put your hands together for Brenda Lee Van Buren. The great-great-granddaughter of President Van Buren. No, um, no, 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 no. Nobody even looked remotely like her was on stage. That's a shame, because Claudia Christian just looks amazing in this movie. And I, I finally figured out what it is about her. She has a like strong Nordic look. A uh, very uh, Teutonic kind of, you know, maybe Valkyrie-ish look. You know, she's a very beautiful woman, but she doesn't look like some little, you know, four foot nine, you know, eighty pound skinny girl that you know stiff breeze is going to blow over. She she's very beautiful, but at the same time, she looks like, you know, she, she looks like she could have played Batgirl or Batwoman. You know, she looks like she could have could have. Um, played any of those like strong female types that you know are superheroines that we talk about today well yeah it looks like she can kick your ass yeah well there's that too her yeah her body is incredible i mean almost unrealistically so it's just uh um there's a scene where you kind of see oh it's when she comes walking out and she's got all the money in the front like in the mm-hmm. front of her G-string. and But then so you get that shot of like mid-thigh to shoulder or whatever. And I'm just like, it just looks, I mean, that's got to be the most perfect torso I have ever seen in my life. She makes me think of that's the actress Yancy, Yancy Butler, who was uh, on the scene a few years later. There's something about the, the two of them that they have. It, it's not just that they both look tough. It's also the way they carry themselves. Now, I never really watched Babylon 5. Was she a pretty much a kick-ass woman in that as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, she was in charge. She didn't take any shit. I always loved her character on that show. And that's mainly where I know her from, or where I know her the most from. And she she was pretty tough. She had a, She looked scowly a lot on that show, though. Here, she looked a little more relaxed and um, just, like, naturally just prettier. You know, uh, she scowled so much on Babylon 5 that it it kind of gave her a really uh, stiff, tough demeanor, you know? Um, Kind of like, oh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez. She makes what we call around here baby cat face um, because we have one of our cats, baby cat um she just is just has this look on her face all the time like resting bitch face <laughs> she just has that look uh you mentioned how she carries herself and that was one of the things that impressed me about her in this film because when you see when we first meet her and she's you know doing her job and she's a stripper and 
all that. She's very sexy, very feminine, very, you know, just strippery, I guess. I don't know. Then once she is inhabited, she takes on the mannerisms and the movements and the facial expressions of every other person who has played this alien in the film. So when the alien jumps from body to body, so do the mannerisms and so do the facial expressions and the and I was I just it's a little thing, but I find that so impressive. So it just occurred to me that something we, we haven't talked about, which is do we think any of these aliens have a gender? I generally assume male, but that's mostly just because of the body that they inhabit. So and when the the alien is in the female body, I mean there is that kind of moment where, you know, checks out its chest and it's just like, oh, okay, this is pretty impressive. But I don't know if that's just because it hasn't inhabited a female before. And maybe it would inhabit a male because a lot of stereotypical male thing is that they're stronger and bigger. So, but yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure if they have a gender or not. You know, they might be stronger and bigger, but are they more deadly? I mean, if, if species has taught us anything, it's that that maybe that's not the right wisdom to use when you're you're dealing with a potentially hostile alien. Sil will tell you that stuff. I mean, she got along pretty well in the world. I wonder, well, because I'm thinking when, you know, when he's driving down the road, he is attracted to the woman on the street, you know, then he goes, he's drawn to the strip club. Um, he does feel up his own boobs when he is in her body. But then I'm is it, is he attracted to what his host would be attracted to? Because then when he, then when he does inhabit the stripper's body, he goes and have sex, has sex with a guy. Um, maybe he is led by whatever is left of the person that he inhabits. Or it could be that whatever makes that particular gender's body feel good is what what he's after. Right. Yeah. Again, that whole search for just whatever kind of pleasure that he can possibly get. But yeah, when he's at the strip club, he's not necessarily even that interested in the strippers. He's more interested in the drinks. Well, that's true. Like. He is facing away and he is he is sitting at the bar facing away from the stage. So, or at least with the part, at the part when we see him leaking. Um, but there is that scene where he tries to pick up the women on, on the street and they tell him to fuck off. And I, the, I love the look on his face because he's, he's like, well, that guy back there just did it. Why didn't it? Why isn't that working for me? William Boyette, he is, he gives a terrific performance with like so little, you know, he just does the, just those little movements that you're talking about. He just does a great job with that. And even though the alien is only in Claudia Christian just a little bit, that part of the movie, again, kind of shines. I mean, the we have her as the stripper, as the alien, having sex with this guy, basically leaving his desiccated body out there. Then, you know, we've got a great car chase going on, and then we end up in this mannequin factory. And I just, well, you know, we talked a little bit about the music before, which is, you know, using these, like, IRS artists and everything, but the, the actual score for the movie, I think, is very effective, and especially in this part. It's very, like, discordant, and it really puts you on edge which also helps because you know mannequins are kind of creepy and you know having this whole chase in this mannequin factory with that discordant music and i thought it was shot really well it really kept me on edge i'm pretty sure that whole thing's an homage to kubrick's killer's kiss which also features a fight in a mannequin factory and there's also an element of to live and die in la in this film with 
you know, there's a political part of it and there's, you know, the use of a lot of neon and the juxtaposition of the beautiful plastic yuppie world versus the the kind of more gritty world that that it orbits around it, whether it's the police or, you know, places like the diner. But you go into the mannequin factory and it's almost like saying this is plastic, you know, and she's wearing a, you know, this like ridiculous new wave hooker neon looking dress that uh, shows off the crack of her butt. I mean, it's it's like uh, there, there's this weird juxtaposition of, of the images there that, like I said, very much to me. Uh, and there's, you know, car chases just like to live and die in L.A. Yeah. And, you know, other than the, the chase at the beginning, uh, I mean, this is pretty much it as far as the car chases go, which is fine by me. I mean, there are too many movies that just kind of rely on their chases, but I thought this one was pretty effective and, and very well shot. And, yeah, this whole scene in the mannequin factory, I mean, it, yeah, of course, it talks to the whole idea of these, you know, bodies and body parts and them chasing a body rather than necessarily even chasing a person. They're chasing the shell, which I thought was nice. And, yeah, everything looks great. I mean, the the scene the the part where Lloyd is there and he's got his special alien gun and he's trying to he's waiting out the the slug to leave her because we've learned later on that the slug has to be out of the host for him to kill it because the gun has no effect on just the body itself you know the wrong wrong element composition I think he says but that scene of of her or the shot of her jumping through the the Neptune mannequin sign just so beautiful and so 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 well done do you think that's a uh, call- back to the the scene in Blade Runner where um, Joanna Cassidy is retired. That could be. I mean, I because I was even thinking a little bit of Pris with the mannequins and stuff, and just when she kind of pretends that she's a, one of uh, you know Sebastian's toys and is is posed like that, and um, so yeah, it might be kind of a Blade Runner reference there, and especially I mean, God, the neon and everything. Yeah, and the yeah the outfit even you know I mean luckily uh, luckily Lloyd doesn't shoot her in the back as she's running down the street but yeah you know, one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier was um, we were introduced at one point we're introduced to Richard Brooks who I absolutely love I mean this this film if we haven't made it apparent by now this film is is fantastic when it comes to the casting and just how many great character actors there are in this I mean I mentioned Clue Gulliger earlier and Edda Ross and, and just there's so many great faces even like looking at like Larry Cedar and when I was watching this with uh, with my wife the other day she's like oh that's the guy from feds and i'm like you're the only person i know who would make a reference to feds but yes i know exactly who you're talking about yes yes okay (laughs) but yeah richard brooks is in here as one of the other cops and i just i always love when he shows up and stuff and so he at one point and i love the in the notes the way that you put this he shows up with a very very special gun yes he he shows up with a flamethrower which i have dubbed Chekhov's flamethrower uh, you know, he shows it around and says something about we took this off of a gangbanger and th- th- they're in the, an old style uh, squad room, too, with the wood signs hanging over desks that say like burglary and, uh, you know, uh, bunco and that kind of stuff. You know, not the kind of office cubicle police station that we see in The Wire or in Bosch or, you know, anything like that today. It's kind of show and tell, which, uh, you know, I have worked in it, you know, with cops and i've worked for a police department in my time and you know cops find that kind of stuff they do show it around i uh, i spent an enjoyable evening one saturday 
doing overtime showing a video of somebody pulling a vending machine over on themselves to the police for like 20 minutes while they did the Looney Tunes music. Cops do have that kind of sense of humor and curiosity. And uh, yeah, but, you know, it's very obviously flamethrower, everyone. There's a flamethrower here. It's a flamethrower. You see the flamethrower? Yeah. Flamethrower. Get it? You will see this again before the film is over. Trust me on that. Yeah, and even yeah, the way you, you mentioned uh, when we talked earlier about how they frame him up as in the center of the frame with everybody around him. It's just like, look at this gun. Remember this. Well, I, I wanted to say about the guns in, in this film that you have the cops who are using the revolvers and shotguns and the kinds of things that you would see in a police movie or a television show for decades leading up to this point in time. And everything the aliens use – whether it's Kyle McLaughlin or the alien jumping from body to body, is uh, a lot of European high-tech looking guns that uh, were you know, made with, with high-impact polymers rather than wood that uh, at the time were, were like nothing that you had ever seen. They use a, a Steyr AUG, for instance, which is a, a gun you might recognize from something like Die Hard or Commando that, that looks really futuristic. And I believe it played a, quote, futuristic weapon in uh, Remo Williams. So it's, it's, uh, it's another way that you kind of signify the difference between the humans with their bulky old workhorse technology and the aliens with their new sleek, innovative space age technology. Right. And we do have that very, very special space gun, which is uh, pretty terrific. Just, uh, you know, we're not quite sure how it works, not quite sure what it does. But then as we go along with the film, it, it gets more explained to us as we go along because it can do a hell of a lot of damage on cinder blocks, but does absolutely nothing to Michael Nuri and his perfect hair. It might be that jacket that he's wearing that, that protects him. I wanted him to be like, ooh, it tingles. Hey, Sarge. It's tingling. Good, Irv. That means it's working. She jumps off of this building through this Neptune mannequin sign, you know, another nice nod to outer space and everything. And eventually um, the, the lieutenant pulls up and uh, the lieutenant is so dedicated to his work that he even brings his dog with him. You know, he got, must have gotten the call from home and the alien manages to jump into the dog. And before Lloyd can get down to the ground and, and kill the alien as it comes out of her body, he's been foiled again. Uh, and he gets a nice little kind of like uh, in your face look from the dog, which I have to say was a very effective dog actor. So we, we talked about the, uh, the alien kind of kind of searching for pleasure and following its id when it's in the human host what do you think that translates to when it's in the dog's body well, i would think lots of treats that and probably like scooting its butt across the floor maybe some belly rubs and oh god belly rubs are great especially when you get that one spot in the back leg just starts going yep or, or squirrel 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 but yeah so of course it's going to jump into the lieutenant and uh again another very effective scene because the dog just kind of fucks him up which is nice and by this point in the movie i mean we are moving now from faster and faster from host to host because we really stayed in the one host for a long time we moved to the stripper pretty quickly to the dog very quickly now to the lieutenant and this is you know you mentioned earlier the kind of parallels between terminator and this film and this is definitely the scene where it really recalls Terminator. Yeah, the the attack on the police station, which I, also, once again, I believe there is a scene like that in Commando and obviously Assault on Precinct 13. 
And, uh, you know, even back to what Rio Bravo, maybe. Or El Dorado. Which is the same thing, basically. <laughs> same <yeah>. movie, yeah. <laughs> Just pick one for Dean Martin or Robert Mitchum. And this one, he actually does have a goal because he's going to come in and finally put Lloyd, give him a dirt nap here because... I mean, at least that's what it seems like to me, that he's just got one purpose now, is to get rid of this meddling alien that's that's trying to take him out. So now as the lieutenant, he can come in, get access to all kinds of guns, grenades even, and take out the two guys that are protecting the cell block and be able to go in there and take things out. And this is kind of nice because... By this point in the film, we also have the revelation of Lloyd finally telling Thomas Beck what what he is and where he's coming from. And of course, Beck, you know, he, he's not Fox Mulder. He has no <laughs> belief in this at all. So he just locks him up. But then when the lieutenant comes in, he just starts killing all these people, which is very out of character for the lieutenant. He says, okay, yeah, let's and – and I think at this point, too, he finds out what a crazy gun Lloyd has. So he brings him the gun, goes into the cell, and then they have a really, really nice moment. As there's all this mayhem and, and firing of guns going on, they have this very nice moment, especially when the alien is there and starts taunting Lloyd and asking him how it is to you know, live inside of this human for so long. Hawk, how do you like being human? It's all right. Better than being Altarian. Altarians are a filthy people. We could take over this place if we wanted. They have nothing here to stop us. Yo, hippie, what kind of dude are you? Now, I do have to say, too, this scene is very close to my heart because this might have been one of the first times where I actually recognized Danny Trejo, especially recognizing his voice as he's uh, pleading for his phone call and then getting that great moment of him saying, what is it? Hey, hippie, what kind of dude are you? <laughs> Before just getting blown away. As an actor, you got to pay your dues, right? It would take him a long time before he would get a lot more screen time than that. I seem to remember there was uh, – didn't he get killed by uh, – was it Steven Seagal or was it Charles Bronson at a restaurant? He just kind of got blown away in a restaurant. I mean, th- I know there's a supercut. You were talking about a supercut of record stores earlier, and I know there's a supercut of Danny Trejo just getting killed in films. Somebody should do a documentary about uh, – just like a short one, like 20 minutes of Trejo just talking about all the uh, – the tough guy actors that blew him away in a film. That would work. I mean, that guy can talk, too. He just, man, I really enjoyed talking to him last year. He was just terrific to speak to. Well, that's, that's good to hear because, you know, you, some people you meet them and it's kind of awkward and other people you meet and they just, you know, that natural, they want to talk and they want to, you know, engage and have that rapport. And he just fed off, because I did this as a Q&A kind of thing, and he just fed off of the audience, you know, and he just seemed to get more engaged as they got more enthralled in his stories. And there was nothing that he wouldn't answer, which was great. And, of course, I mean, the guy, you know, started his life off as this gangbanger and, you know, had this horrible childhood and all this kind of stuff. He knows that all the shit that he did in his early life was terrible and that he was you know, basically destined to be, you know, to be dead pretty much. And he's just like, yeah, every day now is a gift to him. And he just really expresses that. So it's like, he, he like brings you joy when you see how happy he gets, you know, talking to people. So did he say anything about this film? I did talk to him about this. And I think he said that he ended up ad-libbing that line because, uh, 
they they just said they like, say something to taunt this policeman, mm-hmm. and so that's what he ended up coming up with. Nice. You know what's <laughs> funny is that he is uh, right around seventy now, and he's getting he's getting laid now more than he ever has. And he's like, <laughs> Good for <laughs> him. Damn straight. I mean, it's just it his is really a remarkable story in that he was in his sixties before he got his major starring role before he had his own thing, you know, his own movie, his own. I mean, it's all about him. That is unreal and very cool. And now that he can be in like relatively bad movies, like badass and stuff. But yeah, now he can carry a full film. Well, I guess I'm a little disappointed that I don't think we're going to see Machete in space. After Machete 2, I kind of don't want to see Machete in space. I think I, I'm one of the few people who actually enjoyed that film. I, I like it. I, I liked it. Fine. I liked it, and I'm known for having not bad taste, but but letting a lot of things slide. And, I, you know, I, I, I think with the right mindset of this is silly fun, that, that it accomplished that goal for me. And I think that a, a machete in space could potentially do that as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest complaints I heard was that it was just more of the same. I'm like, well, yeah, but I liked that. So more of the same was OK with me, you know, in that instance. So, yeah, they managed to blow away the the, the lieutenant. And uh, again, they're too late. God damn it. They're just never going to get this alien because as soon as he does that, he jumps right into Ed O'Ross character actor, Ed O'Ross, one of my favorite guys. And actually we just talked about him last week on the Dick Tracy episode. So, uh, Ed O'Ross making a, uh, a repeat appearance here on the projection booth. So unfortunately I don't think he's in umbrellas of Cherbourg, so we won't be talking about him next week, but I mean, he, I always love when he shows up and stuff and he just, uh, he, he he just always does a really solid job. It could be a terrible movie, but he does a great job in it. You know, he's probably best known to a lot of people for uh, Six Feet Under, which is, is nice because he got to play something different and do do something that wasn't either a cop or a villain. And, uh, you know, what I remember him now from is Red Heat, where he's the bad guy. Yeah, Red Heat, he was the bad guy. And then, um, well, was Red Heat, was that a Walter Hill film? I want to say it was, but I'm not 100%. Okay, and then I know he was in, what, another 48 Hours, another Walter Hill film. So for a little while, they were kind of, you know, working together pretty well. And he's got those those great, like, lighter eyes and everything and the darker features. I mean, just a very striking guy. And he always gives, in a, uh, gives a solid performance. And again, being this alien in the film turns into another great performance. And to your point earlier, Jamie, just the way that he carries himself, again, is fantastic. It kind of fits right in with that whole alien physiognomy that we've seen in these other actors. So they did a great job of being able to kind of portray themselves as one creature inside of all of these different actors. So here's his uh, 1987 and 1988 films. Lethal Weapon, Full Metal Jacket, the Vern Miller story, The Hidden, Action Jackson, and Red Heat. Everything else was a little bit of TV work in there. But, I mean, that's – there you go. I mean, action films, you know, Full Metal Jacket. I don't remember him in Full Metal Jacket. He's credited as Lieutenant Touchdown. I wonder – he must have been in the second half of the film. Yeah, probably. But – 
it's been a long time. I usually just watch the first half of the film. Is that bad? Yeah, because the second half is actually really interesting in a lot of ways. No, I'm right there with you, Mike. I'm right there. It's like watching two different movies as far as I'm concerned. And I, I do actually watch the whole thing. But I much prefer the first half of that film. I mean, I love Adam Baldwin. So even though he's a complete, um, you know, political kook and everything now, but I love watching him in that movie. And I love seeing, you know, I love, I always imagine him as being the reincarnation of Private Pyle. You know, just like going from the worst soldier in the world to the best soldier in the world and then seeing what the best soldier in the world is like, you know, just seeing what a maniac he is. I th- I think it works really well. So I'm going to say a character name here that he played, and I want to know if, if you know what it's from. Uh-oh. Marvin Dorfler. Oh, no. De Niro. Charles Grodin. Oh, really? He was in Midnight Run? He he was in the Midnight Run movies, the TV movies, which I, I actually enjoy, but he played the the uh, competing bounty hunter. Okay. Who was the, the, the main guy in those? Uh, Christopher McDonald played. McDonald, okay. Yeah. All right. I knew I, I knew it was somebody that I had spoken to, but I couldn't remember who it was. I, I think the first one's a lot of fun. I think the second one's okay. And the third one has Kyle Secker in it from uh, Homicide. So I have a soft spot for that one. You know, I I've never tracked those things down. I need to. There's a DVD set that's got Midnight Run and then it's got the three TV movies on it. Now, had you said Alonzo Mosley, I would have known. Okay. So, yeah, the movie here kind of takes a weird turn because we've had the introduction of the senator character and everything. But really, this now becomes almost a political thriller. It becomes, you know, I think, uh, um, Eric, you had mentioned the Manchurian yes. candidate. I mean, to me, it reminded me a lot of, like, uh, Videodrome and this whole, like, programming and everything and going after the guy at the end of Videodrome. But, yeah, it just becomes this political thriller then and this whole idea of this slug moving into a senator who then uh, Mitt said he wants to be president and ends up causing this whole fury or sorry flurry of you know oh the the senator wants to be president oh this is fantastic he's basically announced his candidacy right here I love that too it's right on par with him wanting the car you know it's uh, he just like uh, he's just standing there and she and you know his aide is t- the wonderful Lynn Shay by the way is uh, talking uh, about how oh he's you know he'll he'll speak more on that later and then he just leans for. I want to be president. Like <laughs> yeah, that sounds. What's that, Senator? What'd you say? That sounds good. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That yeah, yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> I, I think this goes also to the the kind of seventies social science fiction route of of this film. I mean, on the surface, you can see very much solid eighties B science fiction film, but you pull it back a little bit and you get that seventies paranoia, parallax view. Um, you know, a Manchurian candidate. I mean, all of that that kind of uh, anxiety about politics and about who's who's in office. And you know, we're seeing that a little bit now with with things like the television series Brain Dead, which has uh, space bugs crawling into politicians' ears and basically sucking their brains out and causing them to be uh, un- uncooperative and irrational. I mean, this. I think this is a thread that kind of kind of goes through a lot of fun, silly uh, B film style media, but it allows kind of a serious look or a serious talk about things that are, are uncomfortable to talk about just in the open. But it but it gives a platform for some of those ideas. 
Well, and in 87, I mean, we were just at you know, the tail end of the Reagan presidency. So, yeah, no better time to talk about it. Yeah, and this was also the era of films like uh, Night of the Creeps, which also featured, you know, slugs that crawl into people's bodies and, and turn them into zombies and make them do stuff. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about that one. And we're actually going to cover that one on the show in October. So that should be a lot of fun. Yeah. So hopefully Fred Decker gets back to us soon. That would be really cool. That would be nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So fingers crossed, everybody. But yeah, Lloyd Gallagher, he really doesn't want to see the alien become president. So he cuts his political career pretty short, pretty fast by using, wouldn't you know, flamethrower. <laughs> Chekhov's flamethrower. Here it is, folks. <laughs> Which also shows up in Night of the Creeps. There's the flamethrower. Ah, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because kill it with fire is uh, uh, that's a viable solution to just about anything. I kept thinking of the thing with the way that, especially the the bug noises that also flamethrower. Yes, also flamethrower. Kill it with fire. A- yeah. Alien. Oh, yeah. Or aliens, yeah. more important. Aliens, yes. What are we supposed to use against it? Harsh language? Lloyd takes it out, saves the day and everything, but everything isn't still right because, unfortunately, Tom Beck got shot. Uh, it looked almost, was it like a gut shot? Because he's still hanging around, mm-hmm. but he's not going to be here for very long. So Lloyd gets taken to the hospital, apparently. And uh, even though he just wiped out a senator, he's still allowed to kind of roam freely in the hospital or sneak out of his room. And he pays a visit to Tom, who's there. Uh, yeah, his, his life support is uh, pretty much right at the end there and he makes the decision to save the body and uh, still go on living so rather than a big space slug he gets to breathe like golden golden breath into tom's face and that's how he transfers the the one from the other which shows that he's definitely not an evil alien since he's all golden magic and everything but it works and and i don't think it would have been uh very fun to see our two heroes with this big space slug coming out of their face no that, that would have had a um Potentially another kind of connotation too. Yeah, you know that that maybe goes back to the director's earlier film, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street Two. That would be. It would have been like two cops, one cup. Googling that right now. Sorry, I had to go there. I guarantee you, it's there somewhere. From the men who brought you LemonParty.org, oh. it's two cops, one cup. Now this gets the extra explicit tag, right? Do you know that's still there? Lemon party? Oh yeah. Yeah, I I still send people there. I um <laughs> I I didn't the other day it was just about maybe 2 weeks ago I guess. I I somebody mentioned it on some YouTube show and and Brian was like, "What's that?" I'm like, "Seriously? You've never been here?" I'm like, "Oh, well, let me see." I didn't expect it to still be around cuz that was like a decade ago. Um I went and I was like, "Oh, it's still there." <laughs> That cracks me up. Yeah, I think we should all vote Lemon Party this fall. Oh, wow. There is a movie called Two Cops, One Cup from 2015. <laughs> There's a trailer on YouTube. <laughs> oh. kidding. Do we want to see that? <laughs> I don't know if that cracks me up. <laughs> is it like Super Troopers 2 or something? I don't want to know. Uh, they share a cup of coffee. Well, I do like this ending is not very... It's not very clean. I mean, it leaves a lot of questions, which I really appreciate as far as like, because once 
Lloyd is transferred into Beck, I mean, there's that whole question like you, you brought up earlier as far as, you know, does the alien have a gender? Does the alien have memories? Does the, does the alien, you know, is the body that the person is in? Because we know by the end of the film that when the alien leaves a body, or at least the slug leaves a body, and even when it comes to Kyle McLaughlin's body, the, the host dies. Mm-hmm. But is the person still in there? Is there still going to be Beck as well as Lloyd with this body? Or is it just going to be all Lloyd? Is it going to be like the wife saying, boy, he sure did change after he got shot in the gut? I mean, <laughs> you know? that's, that's why it's kind of sinister to me. I mean, it's a happy ending. It is. And he's a good guy. Lloyd is a, Lloyd is a good guy for sure. But then at the same time, it, it just opens up a whole other can of worms. I mean, she now has to be with this man. She doesn't even know this has taken place. And uh, I don't know. Is it going to be like a body snatchers kind of scenario where she starts telling her coworkers, like, that's not my husband? You know, he never has two cups of my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice way to end this. And you end it with a question that won't get answered in the sequel, by the way. I just want to say that. Question is not answered in the sequel. We really, it's different characters. We don't get Tom back again. So, all the questions that you might have about how this might actually end, like, will the wife find out what's going to happen? I mean, because the daughter knows. And that's a really nice shot is the whole idea of because the daughter could see the alien inside of Lloyd. And now when the daughter comes in, she can kind of see it inside of her father. So when he reaches out her, his hand and is waiting there for the longest time for the daughter to take his hand, I mean, it's a very, very nice moment. And it's kind of, yeah, to your point, Jamie, it's kind of creepy. And you wonder, is she going to run out screaming or is she going to be able to accept this alien inside of her father? And it's nice. We're going to end with the the hands holding hands and everything and um eric i think you had mentioned like people getting a, a vibe from of um dead zone from this yeah yeah definitely i really wasn't thinking that other than when you brought up the whole idea of the political paranoia and i was just like okay yeah that you know it's almost a greg stilson like had Greg Stilson just been a normal guy who ingested a space slug he might have turned into what Martin Sheen turns into with all of these loose threads with a sequel that doesn't really answer any of them with the popularity of, of Kyle McLaughlin playing a FBI agent from the Pacific Northwest. You would think somebody would have written fan fiction about this yeah, or slash fiction about this. Oh, had to go. There. Well, you know, somebody's going to. So, well, yeah. And I mean, even the whole idea of like this alien inside of this guy. And is it going to be like, you know, when John Travolta wants to, or Nicholas Cage wants to have sex with John Travolta's wife or daughter in face off. Yeah. See, someone writes fan fiction about this and then someone turns it into 50 shades of the grays. So we are going to take a break and play an interview with director Jack Shoulder after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting bull for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a bat. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. 
but usually you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kickass. You can find us on our main page, which is drActionKickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got... Stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album, Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us. And good night. night. From page to screen. To screen. So they have nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look, but sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually, and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, who's, who's Prince? Who's oh. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys. Going right, okay. So you're a psycho, right? Can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, and put in the search box from page to screen. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Alone in the Dark had its world premiere in Detroit. Well, Bob Shake comes from Detroit. 
is it Seventh Seventh Avenue or Seventh Road or maybe Seven Mile? Seven Mile, right? Seven Mile. I guess that's the sort of the upscale, or it was. Is that is that? Or, well, anyway, the actually the very first showing was in um, in a uh, multiplex that was near you know where he grew up. I guess he went to Mumford High School, if that means anything. Um, That's the one that Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Murphy wears a yes, there, right? <laughs> exactly, right. But uh, yeah, so we that was the first screening, and then we went to a drive-in that probably doesn't exist anymore, and then we went to some grand old theater in downtown Detroit where his mother begged us not to go because it was too dangerous. And that was interesting. I almost got mugged in the men's room. Yeah. So anyway, you've got a lot of credits that go back well before your your directing uh, era. I do? Yeah, like looking at things like um, you've got weird credits. Yeah, like editing, title design. Um, how did you get your start? I was an English major in, in, in college. I went to Antioch College, a very liberal, liberal arts, small liberal arts college. And I started making films there having no idea how to make them, but I just made them anyway. And when I graduated, I moved to New York and I looked up an alum that I had met and he hired me to do just a little bit of editing for him. And then I ended up doing some more editing and he was directing a feature-length documentary on the life of Martin Luther King that had gotten started soon after King was assassinated. Basically, the editors had been working on it for about a year at less than their usual rate. Big, big producer was involved and, you know, got lots and lots of very good people sort of donate their time and energy and so on. All the editors left and I ended up sort of getting hired to sort of look after the film and, and ended up staying with it for a year and doing a bunch of re-editing on it. And the film eventually got nominated for Academy Award, which was nice. But but anyway, right around that same time, a guy that I had gone to Antioch with was dating a woman who was working for a small film distribution company. And he said, you should go down there and maybe they'd want to distribute one of your films. I, I'd made several films while I was in in college. Uh, in fact, one of my films was a film adaptation of a William Butler Yeats verse play, probably the worst idea anybody's ever had for a short film. But, you know, I was an English major, so I liked Yeats. Anyway, so I, I took a few of my films down to this guy, Bob Shea, at New Line Cinema, had this, had an office above a bar in lower Manhattan to see if he would distribute the films. And he called me a couple of weeks later and asked me to come down and meet him, which I did. And he said that they really weren't interested in the films. You know, they, they had all the shorts they could handle and, you know, who wants to distribute shorts anyway? And, and, and so I said, well, okay, thank you very much. And then he said, by the way, do you know anybody who could cut a trailer for me? And I said, yeah, me. And he said, okay. And so we, he found somebody who had an editing room, uh, and when they left Friday for the weekend, we went in there and, and uh, spent the weekend editing this trailer. Didn't basically didn't leave until Monday morning when it was all done, and he and I became friends. And so I ended up doing more trailers, and then any kind of editing work that New Line needed, 
at that time because they were just a distribution company. They they were mainly distributing 16 millimeter films to colleges. That's what they were doing. So, well, Bob always thought every movie was like 15 minutes too long. So he'd always hire me to take 15 minutes out. And then he would also have me, if there were foreign films, he'd have me redo the titles. So as a title designer is really a very lofty, I think the reason I got title designer credit on a few films was that they were like either everybody was Japanese or everybody was like, you know, from some other country like Slovakia or, you know, uh, and he wanted to get a few American names in there, you know. So by saying Jack Shoulder, credit designer, you know, it, it sounded like somebody from America was involved in this in this production. As far as, you know, like competing with Saul Bass, uh, not, not really, no, you know, I was just basically set up a typography, uh, you know, with a titling company. For about 14 years, I primarily, well, and primarily, I earned my living as an editor. You know, I, I, I made some short films during that time, and some of them won a bunch of awards, and, and, and I did a bunch of this kind of editing for New Line. You know, but I edited a feature called The Burning, for, uh, which was the first film the Weinstein Brothers did. I got an Emmy along the way for some stuff I did. Um, I was a pretty good editor. Uh, and then at a certain point, like it's 1980 or so, Friday the 13th had come out and, and, and New Line was, was getting harder and harder to make a good living in the distribution business. And, and New Line said, you know, we really know the youth market. If we could come up with an idea for a low budget horror film, we could, we could make a lot of money. And we'd own, we'd own the film and all the profits would be ours. So I came up with an idea. You know, we were sitting, sitting around smoking pot one, you know, at the end of work one, one day. And, uh, and I said, how about a group of maniacs escape from a high security mental institution during a blackout and they terrorize New York and they're rounded up by the mafia. And they said, yeah, 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 great idea. Why don't you come back with a treatment? And, really think much more about it. And a couple of weeks later, uh, I got a call from Shay and said, where's the treatment? And I said, oh, you were serious. Yeah. So I worked it out and brought it in and they said, well, we like it, but uh, we don't want to shoot it in New York and we don't want to have the mafia involved. So have it take place in New Jersey and get rid of the mafia. So, you know, I did that and, and then I wrote, and you know, and they said, well, we'll pay you so much to write the script and if we like it, we'll pay you so much to direct it. Bob had seen I did a film called The Garden Party, which was an adaptation of a Catherine Mansfield short story, much better at William Butler Yates thing. Uh, and, and, and it won a bunch of awards at film festivals and stuff like that. And, and, and Bob really liked it, you know, so it showed that, you know, that I knew I had some talent as a director. Plus, you know, he'd known me as an editor and I was also one of his best friends at that point. So, uh, and he figured, well, I was an editor, so at least I'd get all the pieces. You know, I would know what all the pieces were to get. Uh, hopefully the pieces might be good, but it, it, at least there wouldn't be, you know, big gaps so you couldn't cut a scene together. And so they couldn't raise the money. And then I, and then I went off and I edited the burning. And then after I edited the burning, which is really my, my first experience with, with, working on, well, you know, I'd done a bunch of trailers for horror films. I, I probably, I, I don't know. I tried at one point to count up all the trailers I did for New Line. I, I think I got to about 80. I did quite a few. And there were all, all kinds of trailers and a lot of really... Um, I did all the Street Fighter movies with uh, 
Sonny Chiba, if you remember any of those, or a lot of those kind of inexpensive foreign genre films. So I, I had a little bit of a feeling, but, but by editing The Burning, I really learned a lot about how horror works, you know, and how you build suspense and stuff like that. And so when I was done, I thought, gee, you know, I really feel like I understand this. And so I went back and I rewrote Alone in the Dark, and I gave it to New Line, and that time they were able to raise money, and that was my first movie. The cast for that is just remarkable. Was it just that some of these guys were kind of at like a, a low point in their career that they were Excuse easy me? to get? A low point in their career? <laughs> That's exactly why we got them. If Landau had uh, just come off of you know getting an Academy Award at Ed Wood, I don't think he would have. His agent called us to see if he could get on the film. Yeah, so I mean that's that's how bad his career was going at that point that he would, you know, want to get onto a it was a million dollar budget. I mean, which is a lot more than a million dollar budget now, obviously, but you know, it was a pretty low budget film from a director who'd never done anything, who'd never done a feature, from a company that had never done a feature. We actually went after Palance and I mean Palance was was doing all kinds of bad stuff. Again, you know, he later on got a feature too, uh, a, a Academy Award as well. And I actually have a picture of me, Landau, Talents, Bob Shea, and Erwin Van Litz, who was this very huge guy who was in the movie. This guy who was in The Wanderers, if you've ever seen Giant Bulb, had a guy. Um, but out of those five people, three of them got Academy Awards because Shea, Shea got one for uh, Lord of the Rings. And, and I thought I was going to get one. I mean, I, I, I truly believe that I... I was going to get at at some point. I was going to get an Oscar, but probably you know I still might. But chances aren't aren't great right now. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so I mean, I I uh, you know, and and we also got Donald Pleasance. So it was a phenomenally good cast. It was one of the best casts I've ever had, actually. That was one of those where I saw clips from that for so many years on um, what Terror in the Isles. Oh right, yeah, and. And I was just like, what is this movie? This looks amazing. And then when I finally saw it, it actually lived up to the clips, uh-huh. which is saying something. Well, good. Yeah, I, I, I really like this film. I mean, it's probably it's, it's the purest Jack Shoulder film there is in a way, you know, because I, I wrote it. It sort of came out of my head. Uh, uh, you know, some of the other films, I mean, The Hidden... Certainly, I could have written, you know, I, that, you know, it, it, it really sort of resonated with me when I read the script. I, you know, I thought, I've got to direct this movie, uh, you know, and I, I haven't felt that way about everything or even, 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 you know, most things. But Alone in the Dark, uh, yeah, is pretty much my view of the world, or at least at that time. It's kind of a dark view of the world right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I... I it's interesting, you know. I, 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 you know, I used to read all about the auteur theory, and you know, and I, I saw myself as an auteur, and you know, so like, if you're an auteur, you have to have a style and you have to have a theme and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of like, I tried to figure out what my theme was so I could be an auteur, you know, uh, and and I actually thought that it was out, outsiders, which which it certainly is. I mean, if you look at my films, you know, most of the films are about people who are who are outsiders, but, but actually on the ones that I'm really close to, and even, even the ones that I'm less close to, a lot of it is really social commentary. Alone in the dark is very much social commentary. Uh, You know, there are crazy people who in a lot of ways are saner than the 
sane people, you know, a blackout happens, everybody goes, goes crazy. And, uh, you know, there's all of that. The hidden was, was all about what it means to be human uh, in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of social commentary in the film. Well, alone in the dark, I also saw that kind of, because during that period of, uh, Ronald Reagan in the White House, we saw a lot of mental institutions being closed down, just that kind of disenfranchisement of the mentally ill and, and the homeless and everything. So I I don't know if you were going for that or if I can just... Well, less, less that. I mean, I mean, what I was... There was a psychologist who was a, a psychiatrist who, who, who was very famous around the time. His name was R.D. Lang. He was a Scottish psychiatrist and he, he had a sanatorium. And his view was that basically... The world was crazy, and so people who who were you know uh, crazy really had just simply adopted well to a crazy world, and uh, so he kind of ran this place so that no one was really considered to be sick. You know, they were just all you know in various stages of uh, of trying to cope with with the real world. So that that's kind of where the idea of Leo Leo Bain came from. The the Donald Pleasance character, and so he has this very idealistic idea of 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 these mental patients, and and then of course it turns out they really are crazy, and they kill him, you know, uh, and 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 he's sort of you know he's he's undone by his idealism, so that was part of it, and also also I think it was 1978, which was a few years earlier, there was this big famous blackout in New York that lasted for for three days. At least parts of New York. I mean, I lived down in the village, and and I think our our power was out for at least two days. I mean, the entire city of New York went dark for two or three days. There were people who were like trapped in elevators, you know, for two, two or three days, and uh, and and there were all of these uh, stories where there was looting. You know, there would be uh, you know something that would go on. There'd be a blackout, or there'd be something or other, and and society would just completely break down. You know, so that was the other the other kind of um, thing that was in the air. I uh, someone was was uh, talking about um, an acting teacher and kind of um, his his way of, of 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 looking at older plays and and they talked about what he called the then of now or uh, no the now of then the now of then. So this was the now of then. That I was writing in, yeah, I, I mean, it was it was the Reagan years. I mean, all of that, you know, the trickle down theory, and it's morning in America when it wasn't really morning in America, and all that kind of stuff. The city on the hill and what was happening on the ground, you know. You had some real good veteran actors in there, but then Dwight Schultz had only been in just a handful of movies up to that point. How was he to work with? He was great. I mean, I, I had actually seen him. He was the lead in a David Mamet play that I had seen at the public theater. It's not like a, I'm a huge, huge theater goer because I wasn't. You know, I was never that crazy about theater. When theater's really good, it's mind-blowingly good. But when it's not so good, it can be awfully boring. But yeah, I I had seen him in that, and he had, I think he had done one feature, and and he came in, and you know, he was. He was just the right guy for the role. You know, he kind of looked right and, and, you know, he was a terrific actor. I was under no no pressure to, to cast, uh, you know, a big name actor in that role. There are certain roles that he plays where I just even forget that it's him. He can just kind of inhabit these different characters. 
I've worked with some other people who are like that. Um, I work with Matt Frewer. I don't know whether you remember Matt Frewer. Oh Matt yeah, Headroom. from Max Headroom. But, yeah. Uh, Frewer was. I mean, he he was he was like uh, Jim Carrey before Jim Carrey. You know, he just he had just he'd just go off on these riffs that were, that were just brilliant. Dwight was a pleasure to work with. I mean, you know, everybody in in the cast was you know pretty pretty good. You know. Was there a lot of pressure when it came to directing the second Nightmare on Elm Street? Because that was like, you were talking about how New Line was kind of getting into the filmmaking versus just the distribution. And that was, I mean, Nightmare was just such a, a landmark for them. I mean, there was pressure and there wasn't pressure. The pressure was not to make a hit movie. The pressure was just to get it done. Because Wes had backed out of it about, I don't know, six weeks before they were ready to start shooting. And they needed somebody to jump in there and take over the film. I had this this relationship with Bob and and Newline because you know I was sort of like the the house editor, if you will, uh, you know, for for a long time, and and also good uh, friends with with Shay. And I was one of the people that uh, he would always sort of consult. You know, he had a, uh, he liked to ask other people what they thought of stuff. You know, to sort of get a sense of, of it. So I was always one of those people. So, you know, if he was picking up a new movie, he'd invite me to a screening. If So I had read read several drafts of the Elm Street movie. And in fact, I, I'd been out in L.A. while they were shooting it and visited the set. And then I, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I had gone to several screenings of the film and I even helped out a little bit with editing, getting it ready for a test screening. I, by no stretch of the imagination, edited the film at all um you know but i i helped cut in some some temp music for for screening but so i you know i was familiar with with the project and i was familiar with with the films you know sort of from the inside and bob knew that i could get the job done so but their expectation at that time sequels were not like they are now where you expect the sequel is going to make more money than the original. At, at that point, the expectation was that, that the sequel was a way to just squeeze a little bit more money out of something that had made money. I think Godfather 2 was probably the first sequel where people said this is as good or better than the original. So it was always kind of thought of you know, as a kind of a less than. The expectation was that it would make... The expectation was that it would it would make seventy percent of what the original made, and if it did better than that, then then that would be good. But if it made seventy percent, you know, their budget and everything was was based on on that. The challenge was just to get it done. It was you know it was a complicated film to do, and um, there was very little time to prep it. And they didn't know what they had. You know, they think it was a classic. You know, they they just thought it was uh, you know it was a film that just happened to make money, uh, you know, because it was scary and who knows what, you know. Uh, they didn't even want to bring Robert England back as Freddy because he asked for more money, uh, you know. And I said, gee, you know, I think you should really bring him back. I think he's really good, you know. I think he really made the film work. And they said, well, he's, he, his agent wants more money. We don't want to give him more money. He's trying to, you know, trying to hold us up and, uh, you know, and then... Fortunately for them, I mean, very fortunately for them, they finally made a deal with him to, to come and do it. But, uh, you know, he wasn't even there for the first week. The scene in the shower was with an extra uh, or body double. I have a poster of it hanging up on my wall here. 
and it says the man of your dreams is back. And if you look at the poster, it's uh, Kim Myers and Mark Patton sort of holding each other, and there's like a a claw that doesn't exactly look like Freddy's claw, it looks something like it, and there's no Freddy. Would you have just kind of shot around him or just doubled him, or how would that have gone? Friday the 13th or um, Halloween or any of those, you know, it was basically like a stuntman kind of lumbering around to, to provide the scares. The thing about Freddy was Freddy was a character. He spoke. He had something going on. And he was played by, you know, a fantastic character actor. You know, Robert England was a really good actor. And, and, and he brought something unique to the role. You know, it wasn't interchangeable. It wasn't like you could just stick anybody in that suit and it would be good. When we opened the film, then they found out that it was all about Freddy. But but when they were making it, no. So so yeah, the only the only pressure that I was was under was to, uh, to well to, to get it done. But then we had some test screenings, and it didn't. It did okay. It did pretty good in the test screenings, but it didn't do great. And you know, I I was supervising the editing. You know, I didn't edit it, but you know, it, if you're the director, you you supervise the editing. And Bob said, you know. The movie's not scary enough. He said, it's not scary enough. And I said, well, you know, look, you know, I've, I've made it as scary as I possibly can, you know. And part of the problem with the script, which I understood, was that Freddie keeps coming around and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, but, but he never does anything. He doesn't do anything until basically the end of the second act of the movie. And Bob said, you know, if only we could move that killing up earlier, it would make the film work better. And, you know, I said, well, there's no way you can do that because it, you know, the way the plot goes, it wouldn't make any sense at all. And so I invited this, this kid I knew. He was like a 16 year old Hispanic kid that I knew in, in, in New York. And, you know, he saw every horror film that came out. So I invited him to a, to one of our test screenings. And when it was over, I cornered him and I said, so what'd you think? And he said, no, well, yeah, it was pretty good. I said, well, was there a problem? He said, well, it wasn't that scary. So I thought, oh shit, I better do something here. And so I got on the, the subway train and in the 15 minutes or so that it took to get to my stop, I figured out a way to take the first killing and move it so it came about 20 minutes earlier in the movie. So he says, I'm going to do stuff, I'm going to do stuff. Then he does it. Then the next time he says, I'm going to do stuff, you you, you get worried, you know? And suddenly the, the, the screening numbers went up and then the film came out and it did better than the first one. Now, I know one of the popular things now is to explore the gay subtext right, of the film. Right, right. Even to the point of the, uh, I think there's a documentary called Scream Queen that's supposed to be coming right. out about it. Right, that that Mark Patton's doing. Right. Now, when you were directing this and reading it for the first time, were you already aware of that stuff going on and just playing into it? Or is this more of like a a, a, a post, post-movie release event? Well, a little of both. I certainly didn't think that I was making the gayest horror film of all time. I can tell you that. Like, I mean, uh, when when the film came out, there was a review of it in the Village Voice that basically talked about the whole gay thing. 
And you know, I got a call from from the head of production of New Line, and she said, "Hey, you won't you won't believe this," and you know, reads the article to me, and, and we both had a laugh about it because it was so far fetched. I was living in the West Village. The West Village is like the gay part of of Manhattan. I'm not sure if, when the AIDS epidemic hit, but it was. I think it was just a little bit after that. And I used to also go out to Fire Island, and Fire Island had all these little little beach communities. And I used to go out to this one particular beach community, but there were two beach communities that were gay. I mean, there was the one that was like the rich gay, and the other one that was like the crazy wild gay. The whole gay scene was just, uh, you know, everywhere I went, you know, there'd be guy, you know, guys dressed in leather, you know, with their with their boyfriend with a doggy leash, you know, and you know, I mean, that was like what was on the street. So my sense of kind of social commentary and social satire, yeah, it was it was it was in the script, and I thought it was kind of funny. So I kind of had fun with it, you know. I knew what that world looked like because, like, I'd walk out my door and there it was. So I was certainly aware of that. I, I honestly, I had it never occurred to me that Mark Patton was gay. Mark recounts the story that that when he got cast. And then there were people who read the script and said, oh, my God, Mark, you can't believe what you got yourself into. But I, I had no idea. I knew he wasn't really too enthusiastic in the makeout scenes. But, uh, you know, I'm teaching now. So so for the last 10 or 11 years, I've kind of had to figure out logically why I did all the things that I did instinctively. And the interesting thing is when I go back and I look at my films, I did everything right. But. If you'd asked me to explain it, you know, I might have been able to explain it, but, you know, I'd watched hundreds or thousands of films and I worked as a film editor every day and it was just, and I'd also, you know, uh, I'd want to be a writer before I want to be a filmmaker. So, you know, I had a really good sense of story and I had a good sense of, 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 you know, cinema. And so I just kind of instinctively had this feeling. So I cast Mark. I didn't cast him because he was gay. I cast him because he, he was vulnerable, but that, you know, usually in a horror film, in the original one, the, the, the hero is a woman. And what I liked about Mark was I liked his vulnerability, you know, so for a horror film, like I guess it, you know, it kind of fit. Well, especially into something like, you know, a nightmare in Elm street where, you know, Freddie is this, this wisecracking kind of guy, or at least that's what he, he definitely morphed into more wisecracking over the years, but you got to have somebody that plays a straight man. Yeah. That, no pun intended, but just somebody who can be afraid of Freddie because you don't want some hard ass guy because I don't think that that necessarily works. Yeah. And, and, and actually what happens is, is the girl ends up saving him, you know, the, the actual girl ends up saving the guy. So, uh, you know, particularly in the eighties, she assumes the the dominant role. She assumes the role, the male role. So, in a sense, Mark's character assumes the female role. If you look at, you know, I mean, there's a way of looking at it that way, which isn't to say gay or straight. You know, I don't know that that if you had interviewed me the day that I was going to start shooting the film, I would have given you this answer. But in retrospect, I mean, that's clearly what was going on. And it's clearly what I was going for. It wasn't the gay straight thing, it, you know, but it was that other sort of dichotomy. When I've sort of gone back and kind of read people, you know, here's the proof that it's a gay movie. You know, you're inside of me, you know, and, and uh, there's like a dozen references, you know, that are kind of, you know, if you look at it through that lens, it's like, wow. For me, a lot of it was just kind of funny. 
Some of it I didn't pick up on. Some of it was funny. Some of it I sort of instinctively knew that that's where it needed to go without saying, I'm going to make a gay movie. It's got to be interesting for you, because I know you're a, a student of film history and everything, and you're talking about the auteur theory and all that. I know that we've gone back to older films, and even when the French were looking at the, you know, the, the B films of the 50s and 60s and talking about the auteur theory, everything was so much in retrospect, and it wasn't necessarily... So, so a lot of the directors had either passed or had were past their prime, but here you are, and people are re-examining a film, and you're still very much a vital filmmaker. That's got to put you in kind of a weird position. Well, no, because uh, as a student of English literature, uh, there's something called the intentionalist fallacy. The intentionalist fallacy states that it's a mistake to say that the interpretation of a work of art is whatever the artist says it was. That basically anything... For instance, you know, I can say that Elm Street was this, and somebody else can say, oh, it's really, it has this gay subtext that I didn't intend. Uh, but if they can make a good argument for why it has that, then that's a valid argument. And good art has ambiguity. So it, good art is open to more than one. Uh, you know, look at Shakespeare. You know, that, uh, you know there's like uh, 50 different ways to look at Hamlet. And, you know, many of them are are valid. Some of them are stupid, but, you know, many of them are valid. I'd rather have people arguing about what I did than ignoring it. Yeah, that's got to kind of be nice. That yeah. It is still such valid, you know, work. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, like, um, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, there are some people who say Elm Street 2 is the worst of the series, or it's the second worst, or the third worst of the series, and, uh, you know, and then other people defend it, and honestly, I don't really care, you know. it is It is what it is. I don't think it's one of my best films, but I'm sure glad I did it because if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have done all those other films. You know, it ended up making a lot of money for New Line. The next thing I knew, Hollywood was calling, you know, and then I worked for the next, you know, 20 years or so. I'm very happy with, with Elm Street. And when you said that you first encountered The Hidden, that just the that theme of the outsider and everything appealed to you, where was the project at kind of when you were introduced to it? Jim Calf wrote it. He ended up taking his name off it, although he's since put it back on. I don't know if if you know who he is, but he he's he, he's a terrific writer. I think he's one of the creators of, of Grimm now. But it was fantastic scripts. There was a director who who was, I guess, loosely attached, who I thought was just a terrible director, uh, and and who who just would have made just another movie out of it. And uh, Sarah Risher, who was the production executive, the head of production at New One, always been a big fan of mine, and she said, Jack, you know, you should really read the script. So I read the script. I fell in love with it. I just thought it was great. You know, I said, boy, I'd really like to do it. And then I went out, you know, and I had a bunch of meetings with various people, and they said, Jack's the right guy to do this. So I was I was really happy to do it. On a certain level, I saw it as a, as a like a Sidney Lumet cop movie. You know, I'd always, I'd always wanted to do a cop movie, so I kind of saw it as a cop movie on one level, and I was very um, determined to get that part as good as I could. And in fact, we hired a uh, a retired F uh, LAPD detective who was basically on set every day. You know, and every time the cops would be doing something or saying something, you know, we'd ask him, you know, how would they do it? How would they say it? You know, so like a lot of the sort of the stock terminology that, that would turn up in the script. He said, no, 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 we wouldn't, we wouldn't call it that, you know. You know, put out an APB on him. No, 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 we'd say, you know, put out a want and a warrant. 
you know, so we got all that, you know, we tried to get all that stuff right. Plus, I mean, for me, it was all about, like I said, it was all about what it, what it means to be human. It wasn't about crashing cars and killing people. It, it was, you know, you have two aliens, and one is learning what it means to be a good human, and the other is learning what it means to be a bad human. Fast cars, rock and roll, hot women, all that kind of stuff. You know, so, so, uh, and, and again, there was a, a lot of social commentary in there. You were telling me about where the project, where the hidden was when the project first came to you the screenwriter had taken his name off of it. And I was curious, why was that? Was there a lot of uh, conflict with him at some point? He wanted to direct it. That was one of his conditions. And they were unable to get it set up with him as director. So they finally got set up at New Line, but with somebody else as a director. And so he basically said, okay, that's fine. I'll take the money. Screw you. I'm taking my name off the credits. That was already just, just him being upset that he couldn't direct it himself. So it wasn't necessarily you, it was just just the whole process. It happened kinda... before, I, before I got on the film. It had nothing to do with me, and in fact, after the film came out, I mean, you know, a little while after the film came out, you know, now he, he takes credit for it. As, as well he should, he wrote a terrific script. I know that there's usually a lot of collaboration, especially when writer gets together with the the director once a project is underway but you didn't have that so what were some of the changes that you had to make once you got onto the project to kind of finesse the script once a, the director gets involved there's usually some sort of a rewrite which is what what one of my agents used to refer to as directing on the page i felt that the script it lacked a little bit of heart uh you know it was clever it was funny it was original it had a lot of great characters, but I felt that the central relationship between um, Kyle's character and, and, and Michael Nuri's character didn't quite have the depth that I thought that it needed to have. And the relationship between Beck, uh, Nuri's character, and his wife seemed kind of uh, a little bit kind of superficial. So I was trying to figure out how to shore that up, and, and, and I had this idea that what the film was all about was about what it, what, what it meant to be human, that that was the spine or the central theme or the subtext that really tied everything together, because you have these, these two aliens, and you have a good alien who's learning what it means to be a good human, and you have a bad alien who's learning what it means to be a bad human. So I felt that there needed to be more of a parallel between Beck and Gallagher, the, the Carl McLaughlin character, and so I was trying to think of how I could make the relationship between Beck and his wife stronger without devoting a lot of time to it, and I got this idea, well, what if they had a kid that that would give them this sort of instant bond, and so I added the little girl. I added the stuff that, that Kyle had a wife and a child back where he came from that was killed by the bad alien. So the scene where um, he's looking in the mirror and then he goes and he looks at the little girl and she kind of looks at him. And, uh, you know, the wife thinks he's maybe like a child molester or something, but he has that, that kind of very soulful look. And then, you know, at, at the very end when he's in the hospital, and I guess that some people had a question, but the, the person who's lying there, Beck has died. That It's now Gallagher who's in Beck's body. And the little girl's you know, sees it or, you know, senses it. And that was kind of the idea. And, and, and that was my, my idea. So, I mean, that was, you know, that was the big thing that I added. The whole idea of, of, of these, um, people looking at themselves in a mirror. Because even, even the, uh, 
the dog does it. In fact, that always gets the biggest laugh in the movie was uh, when the dog does that. But I mean, that was all like, you know, looking at it and saying, you know, who am I? What What is this thing that, what is this body? What is this, you know, this suit of clothes that I put on? That was my one big contribution to the script. I'm a writer too. I, I, I sort of don't add my, advertise myself as a writer, but I've actually had three of my screenplays turned into, you know, feature films by uh, studios. The other thing was that I saw the bad alien as one character rather than seven characters. And so I I rehearsed with all six actors plus the dog and the dog trainer to try to develop one character that they all could kind of play their own version of. You know, so that I think that that was the other big contribution. I mean, the rest of it was, you know, Jim's, Jim's script was, was, was very clever. The car chase, we sort of, you know, made it up. I mean, there was a car chase written in there, but I think the uh, hitting the guy in the wheelchair was probably in the script. But again, like, you know, car chases just usually cars chasing one another, but I felt that it ought to be a character scene because the guy who's driving the car basically can't get killed. So if you're driving a car and you can't be killed, you don't really care. You're going to drive it differently than somebody who's trying to save their life. You know, so I thought that 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 gave the car chase a little something extra. I was glad you talked about the way that you rehearsed with those actors who are playing the alien, because there is that consistency between their performances and even, you know, some of the phraseology, how they will thank people for things. And they all have that kind of terse delivery that they're doing. I mean, so it really paid off. Well, I mean, we actually did exercises, you know, where, where I would tell them to, uh, you know, sit there and kind of, focus on ingesting this alien into their body and then I just have them like walk around and kind of feel this thing controlling their their body and I mean they all start to get a similar kind of a walk and a similar and and then we kind of talked about so that you know everybody was able to get uh, there's also that little thing that they do with their tongue which is that, that Bob Bob Shea wanted there to be one little thing that they all did and you know it, it, it was a little gimmicky but but Bob always likes those kinds of things. I figured, well, the, the weak link here is really the dog. Let's see what the dog can do and, and, and see if the dog can do anything interesting and, and then have the humans imitate it. So I, you know, so I said to the dog trainer, is there anything that the dog does? And he said, well, if the dog gets really kind of a little bit crazy, right, right before he starts to, I mean, when he gets really, really tense, he kind of sticks his tongue out between his teeth. And so I... So we got the dog to do it, and then I, I had all the humans imitated. So actually, all of the all of the characters do that at one point. Yeah, they always say don't work with children and animals, and here you are with both in this film. Yeah, yep. Well, it worked. It, it worked out pretty well. I mean, it was. I actually cast the dog. I mean, we had a lot of different dogs audition. Believe it or not, that was kind of interesting. And this one guy came with his dog. And he said, well, okay. And he, you know, he said to the dog, go over there. And the dog went like about 20 feet away. And then he said, okay, stand, sit, turn around, put your paw on your nose, do this, boom, boom, boom. And uh, the dog just, just did it all. Then he told the dog to turn around. So the dog had his back to us and gave him the same commands. And the dog did it again. I said, wow, that's the smartest dog I ever saw. That's amazing. So we hired the dog. And the dog was supposed to come crashing through this door. And, and kill uh, Lieutenant Masterson. And so I said, well, how do you get a dog to crash through the door? And he said, well, what we do is we we make a door and we put a big hole 
where the dog's going to come crashing through. And we have the dog jump through the hole. And then we take a piece of paper and we make the hole a little bit smaller. And we get the dog to jump through. We keep making the hole smaller until there's no hole. It's just a piece of paper. I said, wow, that's, that, that's pretty clever. So when it came time for the dog to actually do it, so we had a, you know, a special door with a panel that was made out of paper. And, you know, we had everything set up and we're, we're ready for the big moment. And the dog goes running and gets to the piece of paper and just stops. So then we spent the next three or four hours trying to figure out how to get the dog to appear. Like, I think, I think it's possible that the, the trainer may have thrown the dog through the door. I somehow got, got through the door. So there you go. You've got so many good actors in this, and I, I know you had worked with uh, Clue Gulliger before. Um, he's always such a treat to see on screen. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. I mean, I uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are a bunch of actors that I've worked with, um, you know, two, three, four times. I mean, Martin Landau was not not in the hidden, but he's been in in, in three of my films. Yeah, Clue is just so much fun that I thought it would be great to have him in in another film. This was uh, the first time, as far as I remember, the first time that Kyle McLaughlin had worked with anybody other than David Lynch. How was he to work with? He was great. I mean, he was uh, very quiet. It was actually interesting because I felt a little bad for him because I thought Nuri was just completely stealing the film. Nuri was, you know, he was very, uh, he, he really liked to be the center of attention you know, he had a lot of the funny lines and a lot of the funny shtick, and he, you know, he would sort of take over every every scene. And Kyle was kind of very quiet. In the end, it's really Kyle's film. I don't think there's any question. He's the one that everybody's really, you know, looking at and noticing. I mean, I I thought he was just wonderful. I thought he was really, really one of the better actors that I, you know, one of the best actors that I've worked with. I I thought he did a fantastic job on the film. When he's got that great air of kind of peculiarity. He plays an alien trying to be a human so well in this. Right, right. Well, he told me at some point, because I'm, I'm really not interested in the actor's secrets of how they do what, what they do. I mean, they can keep that secret to themselves, you know, but, but he said that he had this idea of putting on a mask that sort of covered over what he was really feeling, which works very well for film because, you know, the worst thing you can do in film most of the time, it's overact. You know, you really want to keep it very internal. And so his acting was extremely in- internal, you know. His face didn't really show a lot, but you could see what was going on behind his face. You know, that was, I think, what was so interesting about him. When the film first came out, what was kind of the, the way that it was marketed, and what was the poster image? Are you talking about the poster with the blue face? Well, I've seen a, a few different posters. I wasn't sure which was the, the, the original one. I'm looking at the original one. And basically, it, it has the face of Edo Ross on, on there. And it's with The Hidden down the middle. By the way, the film was called Hidden. It wasn't called The Hidden. And I, and I strongly objected to them changing the title to The Hidden. Because it was like, it was kind of like, uh, if you put a the in, in front of something, it was like the name of a horror film, the burning, the, I don't know, there were a bunch of them that way, and, and, and I thought it just kind of cheapened it, and I, I worked very hard to just keep it as hidden, uh, but they were, ultimately it wasn't my choice. I don't think they really had a clear idea of how to, to, to market it. When we tested the film, uh, you know, we did the standard Hollywood testing, 
the testing was was very very high. It was it was in the nineties, which is you know hit movie territory. People who did the testing uh, sort of compared it to uh, uh, Terminator. You know that it kind of had that that kind of audience reaction. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the the cast, or that the cast wasn't big enough, or, or they didn't market it the right way, but it, it 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 just never did that well when it opened up. You know, it should have done a lot better, and, and uh, you know, people people love it, and it keeps showing up in these lists of 50 best films that you've never seen, or, you know, 10 best films of the 80s that, that weren't hits and stuff like that. I was very disappointed that it didn't do better. It did very well for me. I mean, um, there was a real buzz about the film in, in, in Hollywood, and you know, I, I had my 15 minutes of, of fame and fortune after after it came out. It certainly worked worked well for me. Tell me a little bit about the soundtrack, because the one thing that sticks out for me is just all of the concrete blonde that's going on in there. Uh huh. When I shot the film, I didn't really have any music in in mind. I had this very good editor. His name is Mike Michael Canoe. He started putting music in. Now, and there were a lot of well-known bands. It really sort of took took the film. I wouldn't say it took it to another level, but it 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 it, it really added and it helped to sort of define the the tone. There was a lot of punk rock music in there and stuff stuff like like that. And then when it came time to actually finish the film, New Line said, "Look, there's no way we can afford to pay for that music." And so they hired a guy to be the music supervisor, and he basically went out and got. I wouldn't say covers, but he got, you know, certain uh, music that he thought was, uh, you know, had a similar feel. Some of it worked really well, and some of it was a little disappointing. You know, what, what happens, you know, when you're, when you're working on a movie, you know, very often you fall in love with your temp track. Uh, you know, uh, you put in sympathy for the devil and it's perfect, but of course, you know, it, it, it'll cost you a million dollars to get the rights to put it in, you know. Uh, so then you have to find something else, and of course, nothing else is ever going to be quite as good. But but I think the uh, I mean where we ended up actually actually worked worked pretty well. And actually, the score everybody hated the score. I hired a guy uh, Michael Convertino to do the music. I listened to lots and lots of different composers, and I'm a musician myself. Uh, you know, so I'm, I have a pretty good ear. Most of the stuff I heard sounded like. John Williams imitators, James Horner imitators, you know, very, you know, everybody sounded like 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 somebody else. And there was this one guy who sounded really original. And I thought, huh, I really I really like this guy. And so I, I hired him. And then I heard his music, and 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 his music was, I really didn't like it. Like I mean, we'd have like 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 the music over the chase. I mean, toward the end of the chase, the first part of the chase, I. We didn't have any music because I really felt that you didn't want to have music in a in a good car chase. It just the the music is the sound of of, of all the sound effects. Uh, but when you first see the the blockade and 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 there's this, this sort of metallic clangs and stuff like that in the foot. But you know what what is this? You know it's it's not your 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 typical uh, music. You know. And he said, "Well, you know, you don't want the cliche stuff, do you?" And then, well, no, I, I guess I guess I don't want a cliche here. And then there's like a scene, uh, like in the in the uh, mannequin factory with the Claudia Christian character. 
he had like harp and timpani. I said, what the hell is this? It's just like weird. It's not, it's, uh, and everybody hated the music. If New Line had more money, they probably would have thrown it out and hired somebody else. But at that point, they didn't have that kind of money. So, so I actually went and, and like re-edited some of his, his music. So we would take one cue and, and overdub it with another cue that had a little more beat or life to it. And in fact, the, the mixer, the guy who was the music mixer on the film, disliked the music so well that he like mixed all the music low. And then, and then went back for a playback. And I said, well, you either got to play it or not play it, but you can't just play it low. It just, you know, it sounds stupid. So we went back and, you know, raised the levels. And then, um, I don't know. I, I screened the film like 10 years later. I hadn't seen it in, in, in quite a while. And I was sort of struck by the fact that the music was, was one of the things that made it feel so original, I thought. And I actually got in touch with Michael and I, you know, and I apologized for all the grief that I gave him about the music and, you know, thanked him for, for writing it. And, you know, he was extremely gracious. Yeah, you talked about how some of your own scripts have been shot by other people. Have you had fairly good experiences as far as that goes? Well, I only had one script that was shot by someone else, and I thought he was a moron. So, <laughs> so I I don't advise it. If I had, uh, you know, Sidney Lamad or, or, you know, Inari 2 or, you know, David Fincher directing my script, it would be a different story. But he just wasn't a very good director, and I just thought that he didn't. He didn't do a very good job. Although the interesting thing is that um, I did Alone in the Dark, which I wrote the script. And that was my the second feature. To, the first was called Where Are the Children, which was a, a Mary Higgins Clark novel. I don't know if you know Mary Higgins Clark is. She writes books that people buy in the supermarket. You know, and there were all these thrillers that involve a woman in peril. I mean, she's a huge best-selling writer, but I mean, she's not... I don't think she's going to go down in, in, in history uh, as, as, as one of the immortals. But And Ray Stark had had, uh, I don't know, two or three other people had, had written adaptations. They weren't happy with any of them. And so I, I wrote one, and they liked it, and, and it got made. I just didn't think the guy did a very good job. And, and also, you know, I, I kind of had my own ideas, and he wanted changes, and I didn't agree with the changes. You know, I was kind of egotistical. And when, when I when I did um, Alone in the Dark, where I wrote the script, and then I shot it, and then I supervised the editing, which is, you know, what, what, what all directors do. And I was thinking at, at, at one point that if, if I were the writer and I didn't know the director, I would hate the director for what he did to my script. Uh, you know, because you end up changing things around, you know. Certain things that you thought worked in a script don't don't really work as well as you think. And then other other things, you know, you just end up changing stuff. I mean, it's you work on the script, and then you think the script is great, and then you go out and you shoot the script, and you think the dailies are great, the performances, the look, everything's working, and then you see it all cut together, and it's terrible, you know. And that's that's what happens for just about every director. Sometimes it's not quite so terrible, but you know, it's never really all that good, and because it kind of takes on a life of its own. Because of the, you know the actors who are in the roles and you know whatever it it it's different than the script and then basically you, you have to then go where it takes you go where it wants to go when a movie's being shot the editor's cutting the scenes as they're being shot so as soon as you 
you complete a scene, the editor cuts the scene. And they, you know, it's called a rough cut, but the editors are not just throwing it together. They're cutting the scene as well as they possibly can. You know, a week or two after you're, you're done shooting, the editor has a cut of the entire film. They put the whole film together per the script, and then you watch it, and, and it's never any good. And then it takes, you know, months to try to figure out how to get it all, all to work properly. So, and that's pretty much every, every director's experience. I did say that if I had been the writer, I'd, that I'd be very angry at the director. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience working on Supernova? Oh, uh, that was quite a story. Yeah. Well, um, his name was, uh, Russell Wright. Um, he was, he was an English, an English director who did a film called Romper Stomper. I think Romper Stomper was, was the first breakout film that Russell Crowe did. His name was Jeffrey Wright. I don't know whether, whether you ever saw Romper Stomper. But anyway, uh, he was supposed to direct the film, uh, and then he and the studio did not see eye to eye. He, he did a rewrite, like about six weeks before they were ready to start shooting, and he did a rewrite and said, this is the film I want to shoot. And they said, no, it's not. And he said, well, you know, if I can't shoot this script, then I don't want to do it. And they said, well, okay, fine. Bye. And then they were looking for someone else to take over the film. Uh, and actually, for a while, I thought I was going to end up directing it. And then at the last minute, Walter Hill came in. And uh, he knew Frank Mancuso, who was the head of the studio. And so he ended up doing it. You know, I knew some of the people from the studio who were involved in it, and I, you know, I bump into them from time to time, saying, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Everything's great. And then, then one day I got a call, and they said, we've just fired Walter Hill. We'd like you to take over the film. And this was in, in, in post-production. Walter had uh, cut the film, and he'd been cutting and cutting and cutting for months and months. And he and the studio were in agreement that they needed to to go back and do some reshoots. But the studio wanted to have a test screening before they did the reshoots to see whether there was anything else that they should reshoot while they were at it, or maybe some of the stuff they didn't need to reshoot, and maybe there were other things that they didn't know about that, that they did need to reshoot. Walter said, no, you can't screen the film unless the reshoots are in there. And the studio said, well, we're not going to pay two or three million dollars to do a reshoot unless we're certain that everything that we're doing needs to be reshot and, and, and that there's nothing that needs to be reshot that we're not doing. And so Walter said, okay, I refuse to allow you to screen the film. And they said, well, we're going to screen it anyway. And he said, well, then I refuse to come into the editing room. And, and I know he had done a film for New Line and he, he had done a similar kind of a thing. And so they said, oh, okay, 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 you can have your way. But in this case, I guess the studio realized the film was not working very well. They said, okay, don't come in. And so he didn't come in for seven days, and, and they fired him for breach of contract. And then they hired me to take it over in post-production. And the film was, was really a mess. We did a test screening, and, and uh, you know, like I said, they hidden, I think, on a 91 or a 92, and that was considered extremely good. You know, if you're in the high 80s, you're, you're, you're doing pretty well. If you're in the 70s, it's really bad. We did a test screening without without the footage that he wanted, to be fair to Walter. But actually, I, I know what he wanted to reshoot, and it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have made a difference, really. And we screened the film for 100 people. We, uh, we put in titles 
wherever there was a scene missing, you know, that said, you know, spaceship does blah, 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 or whatever. Of the 100 people, 80, 20 of them walked out before the film was over. And of the 80 that were left, they gave it a 25, which is like the lowest score I've ever heard of. So then I, I hired a couple of editors, and we went back and completely reworked the film, changed the soundtrack, and did a lot of stuff, and, and you know, screened it for the for the head of the studio, for, for Mancuso. And, you know, the lights came up and he said, Jack, you saved the studio. We're, we're erecting your statue in, in front of him. And, you know, what do you want to do next? Oh, great. So, and and and, and we cooked up a, a new ending that would have been a little stronger. And then uh, about a month later, Frank Mancuso left and a new group came in who had been a by Kirk Kerkorian, and these were guys who had like been running a Las Vegas hotel casino. I mean, they sort of look like the guy who was the uh, the new head of the studio. He looked like an extra from Godfather. And then there was another guy who was the, the, the head of the head of production, and they looked at this film and said, "Oh, oh, they tested and only got a seventy. That's terrible. What are we going to do? You know, who's this guy's shoulder? What's what's wrong?" and and Francis Coppola was on the board of directors of MGM, and it so happened that, that, that Mr. Goodfellas, The Godfather, was his favorite film. And so he, he screened the film for Coppola, and Coppola said, oh, I can fix that. I was on a, a scoring stage with a 100-piece orchestra, actually playing the trumpet in the orchestra, because I played the trumpet, believe it or not. And I get a call from my editor, and he says, did you hear that Francis Coppola is taking over the movie? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I, I was told to pack everything up and ship it up to Napa Valley. And I said, what? And I, I called up the uh, the executive at the studio, and he, and he said, what's going on? And he said, yeah, it's true. We just found out. I was planning to call you, and that's what happened. You know, I was paid very well. Coppola took the film over, and uh, I, I actually, I had never seen it. I mean, not, not from any protest. I just had no interest. You know, they they... They, they paid me off, and they paid me off quite well. And I finally, they, uh, uh, there's this guy that I know who, who was producing a soundtrack album, and he, and he, he asked me about if, if he could interview me for the DVD. And so I kind of um, went and looked at the film, and you know, he had done some things that I thought were were kind of good, and some things I thought were not that good. You know, it's a question of apples and oranges. But that's basically what happened. What are you working on these days? I have a couple of projects in the works. If they come to fruition, um, you'll probably read about it. I don't want to really talk about it. Uh, you know, I haven't done a film since I moved out to North Carolina to to start a, a film production program at Western Carolina University. And so I'm I'm now I'm hoping that I'll get back into production. I would really like to direct another movie. But we'll we'll see how it goes.
All right, we are back, and we were talking about The Hidden. I do want to thank Mr. Shoulder for taking the time to talk to me. And I actually, I want to say that uh, it was very interesting. I, I called him up, and we're chatting, and I'm asking all these questions about the early days of his career, about Alone in the Dark. I'm talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And then next thing I know, he's like, yeah, I, I really got to go to dinner with my wife. And it's just like, oh, fuck, I haven't asked any questions about The Hidden at all. He was such a mensch that he actually agreed to come back, and I interviewed him a second time. Very, very nice guy. So it was a real pleasure talking with him. I brought up a couple of movies that this reminded me of as we've been talking. Videodrome, uh, The Thing, and Lethal Weapon, uh, which usually those three movies don't get talked about in the same sentence too often. But I'll throw another couple out there. I was reminded a lot, because of the whole sci-fi and body-jumping kind of stuff, of Trancers as I was watching this. And I was also reminded, because of the Aliens and the Bounty Hunter kind of thing, of Critters. And it might have been because Lynn Shea was in both of these. But... It was, um, I don't know, did you guys pick up on any of those things, or am I alone in this one? Yeah, those things, mainly to me, though, it's Jason Goes to Hell, uh, which is also a New Line picture, so that explains a lot. Uh, Although, uh, Adam, uh, what the hell's his name? I can't remember, guy who made Jason Goes to Hell. Anyway, he um, claims he's never seen The Hidden. Like he, his, cause he has been accused of ripping off the hidden <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 I never saw that movie. But if you watch Jason goes to hell the whole time, it's like, God, this is so the hidden, you know, because it's not Jason in that, in that film. It's the, it's a slug, basically body jumping. It's really, really bizarre and messed up. But that's the one thing that springs to my mind when I'm watching this. I can definitely see those other connections for sure. But I can't not watch it and think of Jason Goes to Hell. So I've already mentioned Night of the Creeps and uh, Brain Dead, but I can totally see the the especially the trancers, the L.A. setting, the 80s setting, the cop out of time or out of place. The slugs don't turn the victims into zombies as we think of them in this film, but in a way they are zombies because they're basically, what, meat puppets? And then, of course, the other one, I mean, I – was reminded a lot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but even more than that, I was reminded of the Puppet Masters, which, Jamie, I think we talked about that on the Invasion of the Body Snatchers episode, where you've got these, and it's external for that one, but these kind of uh, creatures that attach to the back of your neck, and they take over you, but it's like a whole series of creatures, so it's not just one at a time. It's basically, it's, it's again, very uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's basically like a whole... You know, host of people being taken over by these uh, space creatures, and they have their nefarious plans. And again, they have world domination on their minds, as opposed to uh, the slug in this one who just wants to have a good time. With almost all of these films that we've talked about, with maybe the exception of The Puppet Master, well, and fortunately Videodrome, because God, I would hate to think of this for Videodrome, but almost everything that we've talked about have have had one or many sequels, and uh, this one is no exception. The Hidden had a sequel, and I have to say that it's pretty terrible. So what is it in the sequel that ties it to the first film that they could call it The Hidden? Well, it's basically, rather than it just being one space slug, it's a ton of space slugs. And it's kind of funny because our main character, rather than being Lloyd Gallagher, his name is actually McLaughlin. So it's a little nod Mm -hmm. to Kyle McLaughlin. 
I made it through, I don't know, half an hour of this film, and it just seemed to be people at a nightclub, and then they suddenly like get possessed by the space slug really quickly, and next thing you know, they're going crazy, and this guy's trying to figure out who's an alien and who's not an alien, and he's going through, and of course he's an alien, and, and then he's got, I want to say, a young girl with him, and she's kind of our, what would it be, a Mary Sue, or she's just our... She's our foil, basically. We we find out more about the story, like, what's going on? Why are you doing that? What's happening over here? And it's just like, ah. Oh. And then, you know, she's the, the character that you painfully explain everything to because they, I mean, they take their time in The Hidden. I think it's super well-paced. I mean, the whole idea of, like, I don't know for sh- I don't know for sure that Lloyd is an alien. Like he doesn't actually come out and say that he's an alien until the movie is like two thirds of the way done. You know, we get clues and everything, we get hints, and we can probably figure it out. But it's not going to ruin our experience. But in this thing, it was just like, here's exposition, here's some more exposition. I'm just going to jam this exposition down your throat, and it's just like, no, take your time. Let's get a little bit more. Let's learn about these characters, and that's one of the things that I like about the hidden so much is that you've got a great almost police procedural kind of thing going on at the same time as it's telling this story of this alien and and then well two aliens one bad and one good and how they're kind of dealing with the world i i really like the way that this thing is put together yeah and i also think it it was made in an era where film company could make a film like this and make money off of it if not in the theatrical markets or the foreign theatrical markets on cable or VHS, but you know, a couple years later, a decade later, the game is completely different with the loss of not just you know the, you know, the VHS market's kind of collapsing and DVDs coming in, but so you can still sell stuff, but cable's getting a lot more refined. You know, cable's starting to make its own programming. Additionally, you know, there was a revenue stream once upon a time that was late night television, and that's gone. And there's just so much. Uh, competition in the marketplace for everything that the, the you know the reward of making a solid B film and putting some uh, you know care and attention to it it just wasn't there as as much. You know the one thing I forgot to say about the hidden two is after I I think I gave up on it I did a little bit more research to see why it necessarily was the way that it was and I found out that it was a failed TV pilot and I was like oh okay this explain it explains things so it was the the pacing of the first you know however many minutes that I watched I mean I could. I'll pretty much gauge where those commercial breaks would have been. And I'm like, oh, okay, this makes more sense. Trying to think of it in a television sense, I was just like, okay, this still would have been really bad, but they would have wanted to give you a shocker at the beginning and keep your attention that way. Whereas, I mean, even with The Hidden, they give you a great opening scene that really leaves you at the edge of your seat. Like, why did this guy do this? There's this great car chase and everything. Well, not really car chase, but, you know, car hauling ass through town kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's so different the way that it hooks you, and I thought that they they hooked you so well in the hidden, and they just they they left me cold with the sequel. So do you think they were chasing the the alien nation television money, or it might have been because it was six years after the hidden came out that they ended up doing this. So it was nineteen what ninety three when this was happening. It's just like wow. 
that's a long time to wait between projects to have this come out. I mean, they weren't cashing in on the, you know, the immediate success. And I, I, I mean, I, I want to say that things like Highlander and Highlander 2 had a long gestation period or a long period of time between the two of them because of, I think Highlander also kind of has the same story as um, uh, The Hidden does insofar as it really didn't do very much when it came out at the box office, or at least I don't think it did, because I think all three of us, obviously, when we're talking about this, this was a VHS or a cable staple. And I think that was one of those things where it was just like, hey – this thing has been very popular on VHS or on the cable market. So let's try to cash in with it. But again, six years might've been a little too little too late. I mean, this isn't Highlander too bad, but it's just, and well, Highlander two is, is actually more interesting just because of how absolutely stark raving mad bad it is. And this is just, it, it really, the hidden two, I think, is worse because it's just boring. Yeah, I asked. Uh, I said so because I didn't realize there was a sequel at first, and I was like, Brian, have you ever seen Hidden Two? Yeah. Oh, should I watch it? Nope. And that's as far as that went. <laughs> Are you married to Gary Cooper now? <laughs> oh, it's interesting. The guy that that ended up making. The Hidden Two, I mean, he was in the business for a long time, but if you look at his CV, and it looks like he's he's still around, but if you look at his CV on IMDb, it's like everything stops at, at The Hidden Two. And it's like, this couldn't have killed your career, but that's how it looks on, <laughs> on IMDb. It's just like, working, 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 and done. I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> Maybe it was the, oh, I'm not doing this again. It could be. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure that he's done more stuff since then, more than just America's Top Dog, you know, reality special for Fox, you know. But I'm sure that, you know, he's probably doing something productive. So I don't want to wanna make fun of Mr. Pin- Pinkster um, on this stuff. I won't use the whole line from, you know, Big Baby and say, your name isn't Mr. Pinkster, it's Mr. Stinkster. You know, and, and that really, that might have been a work for hire kind of deal where he got handled sure. something that who knows i mean that that happens right that exactly things go off the rails when when uh you know you make the best of the situation you have exactly and yeah i mean it's a tv pilot so let's let's see if we can get this thing going let's see if there's some interest in this and it might have been one of those things where it really shouldn't have ever gotten released you know on vhs or anything or DVD? Did, did, Eric, did you say that you have a three-pack with this thing on there? Well, my three-pack actually has uh, The Hidden, The Isle of Dr. Moreau, and Dark City. So, no, this does not have The Hidden 2, but I know that there's one out there that has The Hidden 2 on it. Th- that's one of those, like, yeah, you really kind of got shafted by that. That's that's the middle uh, magazine in the three-pack porno where you're just like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be. Oh, man. Yeah, that's the one where you're, you're, you're desperately trying to be like, like, oh, please don't, you know, whatever it is. Don't be family letters. Not family. Oh, it's family letters. Oh, don't, don't be man. the all-shoe one. No. Why did they have to rip the cover off? I wish I could have seen what the title was. Oh, well, at least I only paid three ninety nine for the whole thing. I wonder how many listeners are going to be like, yep, I know that one. I never did what to figure out to do with that copy of Grannies and Panties that I got, but... 
Oh. Package it up, baby. <laughs> and ship it right on over. I'll send you my address after this. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right. Next week, we'll be talking about quite a different film, Umbrellas of Cherbourg from Jacques Demy. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Eric and Jamie. Jamie, what is new with you these days? Are you still the queen of all podcasts? If you say so, I'll take it. Um, okay. Embrace it. <laughs> I embrace will it. embrace it. I uh, I am still doing quite a few podcasts, not as many as I was at one point, but I'm still out there. I'm currently doing the ABCs of Hidden Horror, uh, which is a show where we talk about movies that we think need to be talked about more. Uh, Evil Episodes, which is horror on television. The Skeleton Crew, which is a general horror discussion. Uh, the Devourer of the Podcast is sporadic uh, these days, but we just did a new episode this past weekend. Let's see. Oh, Cinema Beef. I'm on now where we talk about all genres of film. And Dark Regions Radio, which is the official podcast of Dark Regions Press, where we interview authors. Uh, It's a literary podcast where we interview authors, talk about what's coming out from Dark Regions Press, and I do some story readings. Very cool. And then you said you're still doing liking it? That is even more sporadic than anything else. And uh, bless its heart. That's my baby, but it just keeps getting pushed to the rear whenever anything else comes up uh it's still it's still alive it just uh it kind of flatlined for a minute there <laughs> but we were able to bring it back but uh it, it just is you know kind of in a coma we'll we'll say that is there a dead body on the floor <laughs> just curled up it's the one curled up around the table between the two beds <laughs> it'll be back it'll be back i think we can get some interns in here to maybe move that <laughs> It's kind of a tripping hazard. Well, you know, I'm trying to work these paddles over here. Just move this darn body. See, that's it's a safety hazard. Yeah. Eric, how about you? You are like the, the uh, guest co-host of all podcasts. Yeah, that's kind of my uh, my thing. I, I get I get restless easily. So for the most part, um, you can find me over at the Love That Album podcast where I do a one episode each month that is about 20 to 30 minutes of me talking about compilation albums. And then the main episodes either – I'm on there as a guest, or I've hosted a couple recently. And all the rest of them, I have a, about a 10-minute segment, segment where I talk about an album that's in some way related to the main album being spoken about. Then the, the film podcast has a uh, series where we're covering the canon films, and we do two or three of those a year. And I think the most recent one we did, Cobra, and uh, we've done Life Force and Dangerously Close and a lot of cool stuff and some real junk like Bor- Borlero. Um, so I've, I've done that. Uh, the Dig Me Out podcast, which is uh, focused on 90s rock music. Uh, I've been on there a couple of times. Listeners to the Projection Booth might enjoy episode uh, 256 where we talked about uh, movie soundtracks in the 90s, and that was a roundtable discussion. Uh, additionally, I do have a, a YouTube channel where I talk about mainly records, occasionally about DVDs or books. Uh, I put up actually two videos today. And then uh, lastly, I used to run a record label called uh, Reanimator Records, which was a horror punk record label. And uh, we did some cool stuff. We put out the band New Math, who became Jet Black Berries, which people know from uh, Return of the Living Dead. We did a reissue of some of their tracks from the early 80s. And then a really cool band out of uh, Canada called The Forbidden Dimension. We did a uh, reissue uh, CD of some of the stuff they recorded for cassette releases. And you can find all that stuff over at CD Baby if you're so inclined to check it out. 
And then you're even bringing us the uh, final song here of the episode, which is a very coveted spot. I mean, sometimes I actually will plan an episode around the final song. But in this case, you're like, I've got the perfect song for you, Mike. And I was like, yep, you're right. This is. Yeah. I, uh, on that new math CD, there's a song called Meets the Eye. So their first EP is kind of a concept album built around the Invasion of the Body Snatcher story. And then their their first full-length album had a bunch of kind of um, psychotronic horror stuff, uh, very influenced by William S. Burroughs and uh, Kenneth Anger and David Bowie and Lou Reed. But there's a song called Meets the Eye that's about parasites invading the body. And I thought, oh, that's kind of perfect. Now, I did want to ask you, you talked about having your own YouTube channel. Are you going to do like a five-minute video about why you're not going to review the new Ghostbusters soundtrack? Well, probably not because uh, I don't feel the need to advertise what I don't review. Although I I will say that I did make it very clear that I'm not going to be reviewing the uh, Beatles or the Stones on my YouTube channel. You know, those bands are fine. It's just like everybody else is doing it. Are you not a big Fallout Boy fan? Not really. You know, um, I I will say that... uh, for what it was, the Ghostbusters movie was, you know, silly fun. It was goofy. Uh, you know, I laughed, but uh, the music made me cringe. So, you know, the, they they missed a golden opportunity to uh, get some uh, Rocky Erickson uh, or some, uh, you know, the band Ghost. How about that from, from Sweden? They could have maybe done something better than was used. Eh, Fall Out Boy, not so much. Well, Fall Out Boy plus Missy Elliott. Yeah, well, you know, hey... Whatever the kids want to listen to, as long as they stay off my lawn. I don't think the kids want to listen to Fall Out Boy. Imagine Fall Out Boy taking another song and then just kind of adding new lyrics to it and making that into a quote-unquote new song. That, that's just so radical. Well, imagine them using the, the classic Monsters theme and putting it in a song. That's crazy talk. I do Fall like that portion of that song. Man. Yeah. Just that portion. I'd rather just watch the Well, I Damn straight. <laughs> I have any number of Munsters theme song covers that are better. So, Well, thank you guys again for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to visit the website projection-boot.com for more information about today's film and also where you can find out more about Eric and Jamie. I'll post all your guys' links over there. Jamie, actually, if you can send me a list of all your stuff because you are so prolific. And Eric, I've already got your list, so... Let's uh, make sure that we can spread the love and be able to listen to all of these fine shows that these folks are on. Oh, and uh, over at the website, you can also find a link to the Projection Booth Patreon, where folks can make a donation to the show. Thank you to everybody who has made a donation. It's been absolutely fantastic. So please go on over, make a donation, and you'll help us to keep on trucking. Still alive. They will split, then divide, they rock you like a parasite from human host. They must have to breed. Cause misery needs company, needs habits on which to feed them human heart. They will have to be. There is more to this than you and I. There is more to this than meets the eye. Meets the eye. So clever in the 